This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. It's Wednesday, which means it's time for Jeff Simpson to come back to work day. Jeffrey is back. They've had a cute little baby boy. The crowds are going wild. He's not so little, turns out. No, he was a chunk. That was a big baby. Just like his daddy. (laughs) I don't know what that means. Well, I was a big baby. I was 10-4. Oh, really? Mm Mm-hmm. 10-4. Is that your first words? (laughs) 10-4, mama. That's pretty amazing. Congratulations, Jeffrey. Thank you. Uh, Your car is, I pull in and I looked over at the Solara, filled with car seats. Well, your, your car, your 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 car is full to the brim. Not with, an infant car seat, yet. No, car seat yet. No, no. the big, no. just the big old kid car seats. Yeah, this is great. Well, congrats. It's good to have you back. Um, we had to replace the board three times because people kept breaking it without you here. <laughs> totally weird. We got a great show today. By the way, we're going to be talking about um, kind of the science of human decision making. So. You can pretty much break down every human activity into algorithms. And a scientist is going to talk to us about the algorithms to live by. It really is one of my – and I know nothing about algorithms, but it is my – I, I do, don't think anyone else does either. But I know a lot about humans, I feel like. Yeah. You, you hear a lot of people using the word algorithms. But this guy full on – knows it like there's and this is one of my favorite interviews because there's just weird things like if you can't make a decision we're going to tell you how to just make a decision and have a high 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 likelihood that it'll be right flip a coin pretty much it's pretty much that it's crazy but it'll also uh, it makes life a little bit easier to live by so brian christian will be joining us algorithms to live by is the name of his book we'll get to that fun of course um some empty news as well News you didn't even know you needed to know, because when it comes to empty news, the Matt Townsend Show, first on the scene, fifth on the facts. A new movie clip that we can play later. We'll be playing a new movie clip. Excellent. Uh, And we'll have to fill you in on the fact that Terry has watched a pre-trailer trailer. trailer. It was a teaser trailer. Was Was this the announcement of the trailer? Yeah. And he's watched it 500 times. (laughs) Or so. It's unbelievable. Uh, So we'll have to get to that fun and excitement. Um, Plus, you know, just more stuff out of the blue. But first to the headlines, crazy stuff going on. Terry, what do we need to be paying attention to? A gunman opened fire on nearly two dozen Republican lawmakers practicing for the annual congressional baseball game in Alexandria, Virginia, near Washington, D.C. this morning. Multiple people were reportedly injured, including Majority Whip, uh, Representative Steve Scalisi from uh, Louisiana. What? Local reports allege a rifle was used and shot off more than 50 rounds hitting Scalisi. He was reportedly shot in the hip near second base and then began crawling into the outfield to try to get away from the shooter. Holy cow. Police are calling the incident a multiple shooting. Representative Mo Brooks, who was also on site, told CNN that he was uninjured in the event and that the shooter was taken into custody. Brooks said Representative Brand Winstrup was also on the scene. Uh, 
A helicopter landed at center field and took away the injured. Brooks told CNN at least five people were wounded, including a staffer, a staffer who was shot in the leg and two law enforcement officers. Apparently, people were returning fire with pistols. Holy cow. What whole, happened to the shooter? Thing. He was uh, apprehended. Good grief. Apparently, when he stopped shooting. Okay. Wow. Just, it's all normal. I mean, you'd think, you'd think a tower burning in London would be the head story. Especially, I, I was hearing this morning in that, that incident in London, the code, the building code was the outside of the building needed to be non-flammable. And it was up to code. But the inside, inside eh. it's probably hard to make in a, a living, uh, an apartment building. And there may have been kind of a guideline to, for the residents to wait in their rooms if there was a fire, and yeah. the fire brigade would be there to get, help you. Oh, no. So a lot of them were waiting it out, but we'll it see. got worse. Okay. Yeah, it just got worse. Um, other news, I've been talking about uh, developments with Uber. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I, I, I trying to, I guess, make it seem relevant. The reason is there's all these companies that are the Uber of this. Mm-hmm. You know, home furnishings, pet food, whatever. But they're following the pattern of business that Uber created to follow to success. Right, right. The problem is they've had a lot of problems. And if people keep doing that, they're going to have the same problems. Oh. So that's why this is important because basically they're, they're trying to set business learn. rules so that companies don't set up basically big houses of sexual harassment. That's, which a, good, is what that's Uber a great, but that's a really yeah. important point. So yesterday, their chief executive officer, Travis Kalanick, told staffers that he plans to take a leave of absence. His parents... Uh, recently died in a boating accident. Mm. So he's taking a leave of absence for, for that. The company will be run by a management committee. He, Upon his return, Uber will strip him of some duties and appoint an independent chair to limit his influence, according to an adv- advanced copy of a report prepared for the board. At a staff meeting Tuesday, the company conveyed the results of a probe conducted by Eric Holder, the former U.S. Attorney General, who Uber hired to look into allegations of harassment, discrimination, and aggressive culture. The 47 recommendations, including creating a board of of an oversight committee, rewriting Uber's cultural values. Their cultural values are stuff like step on people's toes if you have to, push back. Crush them. Work hard, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, reducing alcohol use at work events and prohibiting intimate relationships between employees and their bosses. Well, you know, it just seems like what they need <clears throat> is one serious uh, they need a grown NBA grown-up. Yeah. yeah, and that's usually what that's... happens with these companies. Once they hit a certain point, they bring in someone who can yeah. run a business. They bring in an executive that so has face- done this before. That's what Facebook did. I Smart. believe Cheryl Sandberg. Yeah, she she's was the kind bomb. of the grown-up in the room. Totally. Uh, one of the other uh, cultural values they're going to change is they're going to stop serving dinner in the cafeteria. Okay. Because the idea of serving dinner is that you're going to be there to eat it. Right? Well, that's a good point. Yeah, you should be just going home. You should go home and eat dinner. That's yeah, kind of, but so, if you keep serving dinner, everyone just keeps. But then you have to talk to your family. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. this this culture of work yourself to death. Hmm. We're going to stop that. Yeah, that's that's good. That's it's a good start. Right back there, back everyone back a notch. Sure. Um, at an all hands meeting for employees yesterday, or in the last couple of days, about this report, um, an Uber board member named David Bonderman. He did the worst possible thing, responding to a remark by a fellow board member, Ariana Huffington. She was talking about. The data that shows that if one woman is on a board, that it was, quote, much more likely that there would be a second woman on the board. Recently, they've hired four new executive level employees at Uber. Yeah. And if you have people on a, on a board, then you're open to hiring or bringing in more people to yeah, the board. If you, have right? more, if you have females on the board, you're more likely to bring in more females. Right. Yeah. Instead of just having the, the boys club that apparently Uber has been for the last right. few years. So Bonderman then decided this was the perfect time to make a deeply sexist remark. 
by interrupting her, of course, because oh, that's boy. what you do, right? Mm-hmm. You interrupt her, and then you say, actually, what it shows is that it's much more likely to be there to be more talking. Because, ah. you know, you put two women in a room, they're just going to oh, talk more. Yeah, than nothing men. sexist about that. Statement. Right. So he resigned last night from the board. <laughs> he's, at, he's at a meeting about sexism in the workplace, yeah. and then he demonstrates it. Hey, so. you know, I think if we've said this once, we've said it a dozen times. While you're at a meeting on sexism, yeah. don't do anything sexist. So I Man. just found that deeply funny last night. Yeah. Um, also, uh, finally, getting yourself and your kids to eat more vegetables could be as easy as coming up with a tempting name for the dish. Hmm. So according to psychology researchers at Stanford, people are more likely to chow down on vegetables if they have an indulgent name like sizzling beans as opposed to, you know, beans. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's, all, in the, it's all in the advertising. Diners motivated by taste, label, uh, but labels affect how tasty and filling we think food will be, says the study's author. To discover whether they could get people to eat more vegetables simply by changing the name, the author and colleague spent a month and a half serving up vegetables in a university cafeteria. Some dishes got a, a basic label like carrots. Others got a label like twisted citrus glazed carrots. The veggies were always prepared the same way, but researchers eh. found that with indulgent labels, they were by far the best sellers with 25% more people choosing them than the veggies with a basic name. But I think you're still trying to name it as an adult. Like if you were a kid naming beans, you'd say like gas pellets. Do you right? want you'd, your – You'd name it something well, yeah. that makes the kids interested. Not like citrusy <laughs> – Well, no, but you – like, you you know, that's a good point. And they probably did that too. That's just one example they gave in the yeah, article. Okay. But the idea, you change the name, make the name interesting. Okay. And you be – you know. I don't want my beans sizzling. No way. I burn my tongue. Then you can't taste anything. You know, I just call them brown Skittles. Beans. Hmm. Brown Skittles. What would you call a carrot? Superhero food. Mm. Makes your eyes better. You see like Superman. You see, that's what got me. Bugs Bunny used to do that. Mm -hmm. How about the musical fruit beans? No. No. That never worked. Mom won't like that, but the kids will. What would you call like, what would you call, uh, uh, I don't know, celery? Gross. Yeah. Not for human consumption. Rope. Yeah. Water. Water. Basically. Solid rope water. Salary celery? Like you'll get a big salary if you eat this celery? But again, a, an eight-year-old's not like into their salary yet. No. So this is going to need some That's why you put like cheese Whiz on it and then yeah. try to dress it up and cover it up. Peanut really. butter, yeah. cheese Whiz. Oh, wow. Holy cow. We got to, we, I mean, I believe it. It's just you got to have to turn your head into about a five year old's head to make this interesting. Right. Green Snickers. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) You're going to really try to keep this going. I'm going to keep it, I'm going to base it in candy because my kids will do that. All right. Maybe they can call them Boston Baked Beans. Did that ever, did that name ever turn you on to go eat those? Well, isn't that a candy too? It is. But it, did you – how many people like go – how many kids do you know? They're like, I'll have one of those hardened shell peanuts. It's like those leftover candy I at love the bottom of death. the Halloween bag. I could never get my kids to eat them. Um, exactly. So, Jeffrey, you've got to give us an update on your family, your children. How's the baby? What would you finally name him? Is it, Did Leroy stick? Is that the name? No. Okay. No, and it's probably a name you haven't heard before. Oh, boy. Here and one, I'm afraid that if I say it, you're probably going to bring it up every day on the show. No, we won't. Okay. 
So the name is Stas. No, really? Stas. <laughs> How do you spell Stas? See, now this is open for debate because everybody you ask is going to give you a different answer. So we just spelled it the way we wanted to. S-T-A-U-E-S-S-E. Stas. S-T-O-S-S. That was embarrassing. S-T-A-S. Stas. It's great. Very masculine. So it's actually a uh, – it's short for Stanislav, which we were not going to name our child Stanislav. How did Stanislav even get in the discussion? No, Stas did. It. Stas oh, okay. did. I knew, so, I knew a guy named Stas. Oh, cool. And he was pretty cool. And uh, Stanislav means to achieve glory or fame. Wow. You guys thought through this. Well, we didn't go – we didn't start with the meaning. We started with the cool, hip version of the name. Stas. Yeah. What's his middle name? Leroy. No. Uh, it's actually Jeffrey. And I'm not a big fan of naming oh, yeah. children after me, but I figured there's a difference between naming a child uh, – giving them your first name as their first name mm-hmm. versus giving, giving them your first name as their middle name. First name totally kind of seems a little hoity-toity. No, I, agree. I agree. And middle yeah. name just makes it seem like you have a special bond. Yeah, or you're into genealogy. <laughs> that I named my first boy after me, but I never wanted his first name to be Matt because I thought that would be torture. Yeah. So um, you might be interested to know that this, so this is our third child. First one uh, where my wife was not induced. So she didn't really have a lot to compare no. the, the I you know, labor went, pains with. It went pretty fast, apparently. Yes. So everything we read in this book that she made me read um, just <laughs> screamed that she wasn't ready to go. But she was in she was excruciating pain. Yeah. Uh, her water broke, so we were, we called up her sister and said, "Okay, well, it, we'll don't rush, but come on over. We're going to head to the hospital." And then the next contraction, she's like, "We got to leave now." Oh, oh! So please don't uh, call social services. But we left the house as my sister in law was on the way. She lives a couple miles away. She's fine. And uh, you know, my wife, she bless her, she made it to the lobby. Started clenching onto me. Oh, no. And I was about six feet away from the button that you press to, so the nurses will let you in. And I was like, just, we got to go about five, five more feet. Five more feet. Come on, you can do it. She says, I can't make it. And she clenched onto me. And uh, what? They heard her screaming. So yeah. they came out with a wheelchair. Um, before she could sit down, they noticed that the baby's head was coming out. Oh, my. They sat her down <laughs> and uh, pulled the baby out. Wow. And, you know, apparently this is kind of a big thing. So they actually knew what to do based on a similar experience that happened a week before. So we were kind of the beneficiaries of of their lack of preparation the week before. By the way, I just Googled the name Stoss. Yes. Do you know what it means? I just told you. Hospital lobby. Oh. (laughs) Hospital lobby. And, you know, not just in our situation, this is actually a problem that's been happening quite a bit with uh, babies being born in the lobby. So much so that, uh, you know, there's a new movie coming out and we have a little clip of that right now. I think it's called Babies in a Lobby. I have had it with these mothers in distress delivering their small and fragile babies on my squeaky clean floors. Step aside, nurse. I'll handle this. Now, someone give me a diaper. 
Step. Wow. That so sounds great. The premise of the movie is Samuel L. Jackson plays this uh, hospital janitor who is just sick and tired of babies being born in his lobby that he worked so hard to keep sick clean. Sick and tired. Yeah, now not he's got to clean it up again. Not only that, but he delivers the babies. Does he really? Yeah. That's great. And then demands a diaper to slap on the baby. Um, so Samuel L. Jackson is sick and tired. How do you say that? I think he said he, he has had it. Oh, he's had it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stas. Uh, Stas in Slavic, I don't know if you know this, means military glory. Yeah. So your son is going to be in the military. No. Uh, in Slovenia, Slovakia. <laughs> if he doesn't clean his room, that's where he's headed. That's great news, though. Boy, you are lucky. What if this? Had, what if the baby had been delivered in your car? You would have been one of those stories we all laugh about. We just barely bought that car, too. I know. Yeah. Well, congratulations and Stoss, welcome to the world. That he should have been named Stat. <laughs> like right, like get here quickly. And he did. And he did. How cool is that? Well, and everyone's healthy. Everyone's okay. <sighs> Dodged another bullet there. Congratulations to the Simpson clan. Bart, Homer, everybody. And Stoss. Uh, let's uh, take a break. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the algorithms to live by, a book by Brian Christian, The Computer Science of Human Decision Making. Stick with us. You know, every day we are faced with problems which need to be uh, solved by decision-making, right? We've got to make some decisions. But what if all the answers we needed about any issue, relationships, job advice, problems with the in-laws, were all sitting in your computer? Although this might seem strange, computers do have a lot to teach us about our decision procedures. They use algorithms, right, to, to consistently make uh, decisions and, uh, and uh, quickly make decisions. But as humans, we struggle with it a, a lot more, but maybe we don't need to. Joining us to, today to talk about the power of the algorithm is Brian Christian. He is a co-author of the book Algorithms to Live by the Computer Science of Decisions. He's also the author uh, of the book The Most Human Human, and uh, we're honored to have you with us here today. Brian, thanks for your time. Thank you so much for having me. This is uh, it's such an interesting topic because we hear about algorithms all the time. We hear about Facebook is adjusting their algorithm or any of these tech companies are, are using algorithms to search through all of the data. Just for myself and others that might not quite fully understand what an algorithm is, educate us. What is an algorithm sure. and, and, and how does it work? Yeah, um, it's, uh, it's an intimidatingly long word for some people, but uh, the concept underlying it is very straightforward. So an algorithm is really just a, a series of steps that a computer follows to uh, take an action or come to a decision. So, uh, you know, computers use algorithms for sorting and searching and, you know, showing you your email and all of these things. But you know, you are yourself following an algorithm when you take any kind of step-by-step -step process to uh, arrive at a conclusion or make a decision. Hmm. So even something like 
baking, you know, if you're, if you're baking bread following a recipe that says, you know, first measure the flour, then put it in the mixing bowl, then preheat the oven, you are in effect following an algorithm. And uh. so that's, that's one of the basic messages of the book is there's, there's kind of a, a deep connection between the way that humans uh, approach our lives and some of the, the basic underlying concepts of computer science and identifying that, that parallel I think can can really open the door to a lot of insights about our own lives. And I, I that's what I loved about it because it seems like there, there's many of us that struggle making a decision, or we think about it and we think about it, and it it then we end up making a decision that doesn't feel like it was so right. But it, as I was reading mm-hmm. through a lot of the uh, the material and your book, I've I've noticed that honestly. It's it really is a process that if if we would just pay attention to the process we're using, um, we might be able to increase our effectiveness of decision making, you know, but by a lot. I think that's exactly right. And um, I think, you know, there are payoffs at a number of different levels, um, you know, thinking about kind of the optimal decision making strategy can, you know, in the most basic sense, just increase our chance of getting a, a successful outcome. But it can also give us, uh, I would say, peace of mind. You know, there are many cases in computer science where a certain domain of problems uh, are just hard. They're just kind of certifiably hard. And so even following the very best procedure, uh, you still have a certain probability of, of error or probability of failure. And I think this is something that, you know, whenever something uh, in a human decision goes awry or we don't get the result we want. It can be really tempting to replay the decision-making process in our mind and sort of agonize over where did we go wrong. And in many cases, I think we, we can get some solace or some consolation from computer science um, because there's a sense in which if you know that you've been following the optimal decision-making procedure um, and you know that it just is going to fail with some probability then even if you don't get the outcome you want, you can take comfort in knowing that you followed the right approach. Hmm, right. Yeah, you, and you went, around, you went about it in the, the most effective way. Yeah, exactly. Because, I mean, there, I guess there still could be an anomaly, right? There still can be a weird, you know, outlier that might change this data set. But t- talk to me about – you give a wonderful example in uh, your Huffington Post article – about just shopping for an apartment in San Francisco mm-hmm. because it's hard to find an apartment yeah. but there and there's and when you finally get the apartment because of shortages and zoning laws and limiting of new construction you, you only have a few minutes to make the decision to talk about how how you could see algorithms helping with that process yeah absolutely so yeah, both my uh, collaborator Tom Griffiths and I live in the San Francisco Bay Area, which is notorious for having uh, a, a shortage of real estate. And so, you know, exactly as you described, when you go to an open house, for example, for an apartment, um, you know, people, people are, are literally kind of crowding each other out to, to hand a deposit check to the landlord first. Um, and so you you face a situation in which you need to make an, an on-the-spot commitment. Um, as soon as you walk into an apartment, you have to decide, do I want to go for this? In which case, 
you don't have the opportunity to know what other apartments might have been out there and if something better might have been out there because you just have to commit on the spot. Um, on the other hand, if you decide that you don't want to commit your, your deposit right on the spot, then you walk away and you lose the ability to change your mind and come back. Mm. And so this creates a particular kind of decision dilemma. Um, I think we are, we're used to the idea that making a, an informed, rational choice involves kind of surveying a bunch of different options, uh, reflecting on the one that we like the best, and then choosing that. But notice that here we don't have the luxury of being able to uh, explore a bunch of different options before making the choice. We actually have to make these decisions at each step of the way. Um, do I take the option in front of me, or do I continue uh, gathering more information, but I, but I lose the option in front of me? Yeah. And so I think this is a very identifiable type of human uh, predicament um, where you don't really know what else might be out there. You don't know whether you're, you're walking away from a potentially good thing. And, you know, we have these idioms like a bird in hand is worth two in the bushes. <laughs> right, right. Um, but they don't really give us a level of precision that's actually useful when we face these problems. So what's really wonderful about looking at the mathematics here is that there's a very clean answer to what seems like this paradoxical problem. And the answer happens to be 37%. <laughs> so in particular, uh, if you want the, the very best chance of getting the very best apartment, uh, then you should spend the first 37% of your search. So if you've given yourself a month to find a new place, that would be the first 11 days. So you spend the first 37% of your time uh, just non-committally exploring your options. And then after that point, be prepared to commit immediately to the first place you see that's better than what you saw in that first 37%. Wow. Um, and so this is not merely, not merely an intuitively satisfying uh, balance between looking and leaping. This is, uh, this is actually the, the certified optimal result. So you are going to spend, if, if you were looking for a month, you're going to give it one month, you would spend 11 days non-committally looking, 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 turning stuff down, looking at the next place, looking at the next place, mm -hmm. and then commit after the 11th day to commit quickly, you know, uh, definitively on the next best option that comes up after day 11. And statistically, That's right. That's right. You, will have, you will have hit kind of an ideal. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, there's uh, this is a domain that's known as optimal stopping. Um, and in any optimal stopping problem, you are trying to basically balance two different risks. You know, there's the risk that you may see the best option and uh, pass it by because you think there's something even better out there. Um, and there's another kind of complementary risk, which is that you stop too soon and you take something that seems really good when, in fact, there is something better out there. Hmm. And computer science or understanding the mathematics can, can't, you know, entirely remove these intrinsic uh, risks or these intrinsic uh, difficulties. But what they can do is give you, as I said, that the, the optimal way to uh, balance those trade-offs and, and make as good of a decision as you can. And, and, I mean, that's a basic, that's just a basic algorithm. I guess it would work. There's places, I guess, it wouldn't work. If, mm -hmm. if, if you don't need the stopping 
um, uh, what was the term you used? The stopping, this optimal stopping. Optimal stopping. Um, mm-hmm. if, if, if it doesn't fit that need for that algorithm, then you'd need another algorithm. That's exactly right. And so when, one of the things that we try to do in the book is we chart, uh, in this case, 12 different of these canonical uh, problem domains. And we try to give you basically an intuition of, okay, what, what resembles an optimal stopping problem? What resembles, for example, an explore-exploit problem, which we can talk about in a minute? Um, so optimal stopping problems um, are ones that have this form of there's a sequence of things, and at each point in the sequence you have to kind of make a commitment. So oh. real estate is of this type, you know, not just leasing an apartment, but if you're, if you're buying a house, you know, there's an open house, and then they take offers the next week. And you have to make a similar decision of, is there something better out there? Should I not make an offer and, and keep going? Um, driving, any, any decision involving the car uh, takes this form. You know, you're, you're driving down the highway and you see a, a rest stop and you think to yourself, well, should I pull in there or should I keep going? And maybe the, the next one in a couple miles is going to be nicer or something like that. So that's an optimal stopping huh. problem. Dating? Uh, when you're looking for a parking space. And dating, yeah, that's that's absolutely right. So many people have uh, have argued that uh, you could think of romance as an optimal stopping problem, where you're in a relationship and you get to a certain point and you have to decide, you know, do do I commit to this person, forsaking all others, or do I kind of end the relationship and 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 look for someone else that might be a better match? But you you of course don't know whether that person is out there or not. Yeah. And so. Uh, we actually, in the book, we tell the story of several noted uh, scientists who apply the 37% <laughs> principle to their dating life with, um, I think it's fair to say, with mixed <laughs> results. <laughs> Do they? Um, yeah. Because it, it, it seems like an algorithm may not work where the heart should work, except many mm-hmm. people are so in the heart that they can't make a decision either. So it's almost like you might need yeah. a mix. I think that is exactly right. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, there, there are many ways in which uh, reality doesn't conform precisely to the tidy constraints of a mathematical problem. So, for example, we, we give the example of the Carnegie Mellon professor of operations research named Michael Trick, who, as a graduate student, was dating this woman and was kind of trying to decide whether he, he felt like he wanted to commit. Uh, and... He thought to himself, oh, well, you know, dating is basically like an optimal stopping problem. So I should just <laughs> compute 37% of, uh, you know, my you know, dating uh, time in my life. And so he said, well, okay, I'm, I'm open to meeting a partner from, let's say, age 18 to 40. So 37% of that would give you age 26.1. <laughs> and it just happened to be his age at the time. And so he proposed on the spot, because he knew exactly what oh, there you the algorithm go. told him to do. Um, but it backfires because she, uh, she turned him down. Yeah, cause so that's, uh, you know, that's she, one of the ways in which life does not always perfectly resemble uh, the problem. So true. She, understood, she realized that he had made the decision by his calculus. Um, great. Uh, we'll take a break. We're speaking with Brian Christian, and uh, he's, he's the author of Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. Fascinating, fascinating take on, uh, on how, to, how to make some of the toughest decisions in our lives. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. 
friends of the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking with Brian Christian, author of the book Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions. Brian is also the author of uh, the book The Most Human Human, which was named Wall Street Journal's bestseller and the New York favorite New Yorker's favorite book of the year. He co-authored with Tom Griffiths this last book, Algorithms to Live By, a number one Audible bestseller, by the way. And uh, I love it because it's such a different approach to decision making. And so many people have a harder time making decisions, it seems like today, just because of the overwhelming data we have. We have so much information, and yet we've got to make decisions. And computers do it. They make the decisions just by running the algorithm. And Brian teaches us, that well, there's many, many different algorithms that we can use to make some of the tougher decisions in our lives. Brian, thanks again for being with us. Hey, it's my pleasure. This is, uh, it's it's a fun take, and it's, it's interesting to know it, it's not perfect, right? But but I guess if we're going to make a decision on how long we should circle the parking lot before we finally just pick a stall, because we, you know, there might be a better one down the row. Um, if you're if you're if you're caught up in that, maybe just do the thirty seven percent rule. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, there um, there's a surprisingly vast mathematical literature on uh, optimal parking strategies. So. We uh, we devote a whole section to that in the book. Do you? Um, but you know, the, <laughs> that's great. For anyone who's who's been in that situation of uh, trying to decide whether you just commit to the space in front of you or you try to press on in the hopes that there's something better out there, um, we we actually include a little uh, chart that you can print out and stick on your dashboard. <laughs> that's that tells great. You, uh, exactly to work it through. Work it through. It's so funny because I, I mean, a lot. Of, I didn't know people were having these problems, but. Um, I, I guess we all have our own system, don't we? And I guess that our own system mm-hmm. is, is I guess, our algorithm. Yeah, I mean, I think we, we have these kind of heuristics or we have these, um, you know, idioms yeah. that guide us in, in different uh, scenarios. Um, but we don't often subject them to the kind of rigor and scrutiny that, mm. you know, the, the optimal strategies in computer science have been subjected to. And so that's one of the, that's one of the great things about, you know, e- examining these links between computer science and human decision-making, is that uh, when we draw results from the computer science literature, um, it is, you know, battle-tested. It, it is... Uh, proven mathematically to be the the best possible strategy for that situation. And so um, it it comes with guarantees that uh, that typical self-help advice uh, doesn't offer. And and, and two, and I guess uh, a caveat that it's not always perfect, and yet so but yet even when it's not perfect, there's still other algorithms we can use to um, help you deal with the next problem. Um, you, you, you yeah. said th- you said there's about 32. Did you say different uh, algorithms in the book that you talk about? That that sounds about right. I'm not sure. To be honest, I'm not sure the exact number, but that that sounds about right. We have 12 different chapters that kind of break down the, the major categories of problems. So we were just talking about optimal stopping problems. Um, another category that we get into after that is what are called explore-exploit problems, and I think these are very relevant to, to human life as well. Um, we often have this situation where we need to make a choice between uh, our favorite thing and trying something new. 
So going out to eat, you know, do you, do you order your favorite dish or do you try a dish you've never tried before? Uh, do you go with your closest friend or do you reach out to someone who you'd like to get to know better? Hmm. Um, anytime you play music, you know, do you play a beloved classic album that you know and love or do you, do you turn on the radio and try to discover something new? So we have, you know, again, as we were talking earlier, we have these words of wisdom that we go by, whether it's, you know, uh, make new friends, but keep the old one is silver, the other gold. You know, mm-hmm. there, there are these sayings and so forth that, that offer us a little bit of insight into these problems. But in fact, there's a vast computer science literature on how to make exactly these kinds of trade-offs. So computer scientists know it as the explore-exploit trade-off. So anytime you're in a situation where you're not sure whether to try something new and, and branch out or just stick to something that, uh, you know, you can trust and know and love, uh, you are in an explore-exploit problem. And so computer science gives us a couple strategies and, and a couple basic principles uh, that can guide, give us some guidance in, in situations like that. What, what, are, what are one of the strategies or two of them? Yeah, well, the, the basic idea in any explore-exploit problem, the, the key thing uh, is how long uh, you have to uh, enjoy the thing that you're, that you're choosing. So mm. to give you a concrete example, um, if you just move to a new city um, and you're going to be there for many years, uh, well, the more time you have, the more exploratory you should be. So um, even if you find a restaurant that you really love on, on the first night in town, you should nonetheless keep, keep trying new things because uh, the odds of discovering something new that's better than the place you already like are pretty good because mm-hmm. you don't know that town very well yet. Um, and what's more, if you do find a place that you like even better, you've got years to keep going back and enjoy it. Um, on the other hand, if you're just about to move out of town, uh, then you should be in much more of an exploit-based uh, uh, mind frame. And the, the word has negative connotations in English, but to a computer scientist, uh, exploit just means leverage the information that you already have rather yeah. than getting more. So if you're about to move out of town, then uh, there's, there's not so much use trying a brand-new restaurant that just opened up because the odds are that it's not going to be better than your favorite place that you already know about because you know that town pretty well. And even if it is, you've only got a couple nights left to enjoy it. And That's so great. I think that, intui- that intuition that we should be more exploratory the more time we have um, really has given me uh, some perspective on, on how to think about these types of problems. And it, it also helps us make sense of kind of the arc of a human life. You know, we think of children as extremely curious and exploratory and, you know, they're always interested in new things. Uh, and we think about older adults as being kind of set in their ways and resistant to uh, new ideas and, and kind of fixed in the things that they like. Yeah. And looking at the mathematics here uh, shows us that, in fact, both of these are, are pretty reasonable ways to behave relative to how much time you have uh, in your life. so And it's interesting I how many... The t- mathematics... Oh, yeah. go ahead. 
No, it just it gives us a way of kind of making sense of the arc of a human life, which yeah. I think is really sort of lovely. And we don't think it's we don't like I, I whether I explore or exploit, it is dependent on time. I mean, and and there's other conditions. Mm-hmm. So I guess the benefit of thinking about it kind of through the algorithm or in kind of the system is there's variables at play here. And once you start to know the variables, you it seems like you actually start asking smarter questions and have a deeper, smarter evaluation of what's going on. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, I, the, the goal is not necessarily for people to come away from this, uh, you know, living their life strictly by the numbers, but but rather to give people kind of a vocabulary and, and a framework for thinking about things. So, for example, um, you know, my, uh, my fiancé and I uh, were looking at, uh, you know, houses, you know, to live together. And um, when we realized that we were going to be kind of leaving the area that we were in, uh, we realized, oh, you know, from an explore-exploit perspective, we we're kind of near the end of this one interval of time. And so we should, in general, spend that time, you know, with some of our closest friends who live in that area and going to some of our favorite restaurants from that area. And then when we get to this new area, we should be very exploratory hmm. and um, and really open to trying new things, even if there are things we already know and like. And so, um, you know, here's a here's a way of thinking that doesn't, look like a kind of robotic Spock-like approach to life. Um, but these, these general insights and these principles are being derived uh, from computer science. So I think it's really nice to identify those kind of underlying patterns in your life and, and see places to apply some of these ideas. Yeah. And, and I guess, too, the logic, there's because there's so much logic applied. And it's also interesting to think that, is it possible that I could take 12 different decision making, you know, um, approaches to, and and that might eliminate, or not eliminate, but support and strengthen 95% of my decision making. I mean, to me, that's mm-hmm. exciting right. to think that, it, you know, there might be just be 12 different ways to look at it, exploit or explore um, that, I don't know, it, to me, I think it's a fascinating, completely different view for me. We've only got about another minute or so. So help me understand, Brian, if, if so other than getting the book, Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions, what, what, else, what else can we do uh, as humans in our decision making that is just something that is intuitively done by a programmer who's programming a computer? Um, I think... One of my favorite examples for this is, uh, you know, we all have uh, kind of a, a messy desk, for example, for me in my office, you know, with a, with a pile of papers on it. Um, and uh, we, we kind of berate ourselves for, you know, why don't we get more organized? And there are a couple interesting insights that come out of computer science um, that may, may cause us to let ourselves off the hook. Mm. So, for example, um, if getting organized will take you more time than uh, you will save by being organized, then you just should allow yourself to be messy. Um, so that's an idea that comes out of what's called the search sort trade-off. Um, and secondly, there's this wonderful result from uh, an area of computer science called caching that shows that uh, the very best policy you should have uh, is to put the 
the most recent thing that you touched uh, as close to hand as possible. And so uh, it, it, in summarized terms, that means just throw your papers in a big pile, and whenever you're done using something, put it on the top of the pile. Hmm. And so here's a case where um, computer science validates what people are doing by default. Um, and the difference is that when we do it, we feel bad about it, but in fact, we, we shouldn't. Uh, so whenever we, we tell ourselves, you know, we really need to get organized, yeah. um, there's a surprising message from computer science that says that you're actually more organized than, than you may realize. Isn't that amazing? And just keep it on the pile. Just put it on the pile. It, it's, exactly. If it's on the top exactly. of the pile, you know it's what you did last. Oh, I love it. Exactly. That's good stuff. Well, Brian, thank you so much for your great work and research and insight. Uh, I know you're going to help a lot of people, uh, a lot of our listeners on the show. The book, again, is Algorithms to Live By, The Computer Science of Human Decisions by Brian Christian and Tom Griffiths. We'll take a break, my friends. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. coach would have put me in fourth quarter, we'd have been state champions. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. Play ball! Play ball! You know, isn't it a great idea to know as much as you can know about yourself and your relationships and how you think? I mean, when it comes down to it, it's about you understanding you. So how well do you understand your decision-making? How well do you understand uh, your social skills? Do you feel like you are on top of the game? I mean, time and time again, I have people come into my office, and as we as we sit down, their marriage is suffering. It's been suffering for 20 years. They've known it's been suffering for 20 years, and yet we haven't – we haven't – we don't even know why. We don't know why. But one of the things that I'm finding more and more is the why is usually not what we ever discuss, right? So what we discuss is the money, the sex, the kids, the, you know, the trust in the relationship. But deeper down, there tends to be bigger issues. And I I usually have found that there's three basic uh, drivers for the problems of our relationships. Those three drivers are, do you feel safe deep down? With your partner, do you feel lovable? Do you feel like they actually love you and care for you and will be there to love you long term? And do you feel capable? So safe, lovable, and capable tend to be what I call the the real triggers that uh, that upset our lives. And yet we fight about everything else. We fight. I have a couple that came in. They're fighting about their wedding date when they're going to get married. And um, because he keeps putting it off, she keeps wanting it earlier. And in reality, the wedding date is not the issue. (laughs) One of them doesn't feel capable of being married because he can't provide yet. He he doesn't. He's not out of school. It's a capable issue. And the other doesn't feel lovable because her fiance isn't making it a priority to get married. So just like with the algorithms we were talking about earlier, there's always a deeper thing going on. And if we want to cut through the the you know the difficult stuff and get to the solutions faster, get down to those deeper issues. Lovable, capable, safe. A little coach's corner for you. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you love stronger. We'll be back.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Happy Flag Day. Today's the day honors uh, from June 14th, 1777, the resolution from the Second Continental Congress, which called for an official United States flag. The resolution called for the flag to be the 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars in uh, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. Flag day. So get your flags out there. Uh, joining us, by the way, great news. It's it's International Bath Day, and what better way to celebrate it than having Jeffrey Liam Simpson back with us. A little song from Jeff <laughs> in his bath time. Jeff's back. Uh, had a cute little baby boy in an emergent situation in the lobby of, uh, of the hospital. Yes. Cute little Stas. And luckily, I mean, I was seconds away from having to deliver it myself. Which, honestly, everybody is grateful you did not have to go there. Oh, yeah. Because that would have been traumatic and you probably would be gone for a month. (laughs) Plus all the therapy and everything after that. Uh, International Bath Day, by the way, um, it's, it's it's a legend that on June 14th, around 260 B.C., the Greek mathematician, scientist, and scholar Archimedes discovered uh, while taking a bath that an object's volume could be accurately measured by being submerged in water. I thought you were going to say that's when they figured out, like, oh, we can clean our bodies? Oh, no. That is apparently where Archimedes leapt out of the bathtub yelling, Eureka, Eureka! He struck gold in the bathtub? (laughs) No. That's the first time, I guess, they used the word Eureka, Eureka to, to signify a discovery. You know? Like, what a great thing. He creates some incredible, you know, scientific theory while in the bathtub, and the rest of us just soak. Are you going to take a bath today? No. I'm not a – I don't I don't think I've taken a bath for years. <laughs> what was the year on that? Uh, around 260 B.C. The article I was reading showed the math on how they figured that out. Really? Apparently Archimedes left some record that it was on – some day of the week, it was so many days after some celebration oh, or something. Yeah. So then they, because our calendar that we used yeah. wasn't in, in effect no. at that point. So they basically applied our calendar and went back yeah. and figured out it was on this date. And then when they figured it out and they figured out the date, somebody jumps out of the tub, says, Eureka, Eureka, right. we figured out the date. I think that's how that goes. So he figured out things float. Yeah. And displacement of water. Other people use, you know, whatever math that didn't exist at that point to figure right. out what day. Because, you know, we're bored. That's right. Others just uh, get their toes stuck in the tub. Some we've read about put, um, what's that, peanut, what's that nut? Nutella. Nutella, Nutella in their tub. In yeah. Mm-hmm. If Some I found, leave a gator in their tub. Right. If I found something floating in the tub, Eureka is probably the last thing I would say. <laughs> probably get out of there as quickly <laughs> as possible. Yuck. This is true. So much to talk about today. Uh, We're going to um, be getting into uh, giving you a chance to figure out what life has taught you. We're going to go through a little process to figure out, because life is always the great teacher. Mm. 
what has we, life we, taught we, you? We learn so much, but we don't necessarily realize what yeah. we're learning in the moment. So how to capture the learning, we'll have a guest that will walk us through a process of learning, reviewing your life, identifying, you know, the lessons learned. Mm. What have you learned? Well, I've learned today, for example, uh, if you're about to have a baby and you're a week overdue, don't dilly-dally. Just camp out at the hospital. Get to the hospital, because yeah. if not, you could be delivering in the lobby. Actually, in Hold, between doors. Holding on to the gumball machine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give you my Kiefer Sutherland thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Just I also, whispered. I also learned that I did not know this. Stas is, means that you're a warrior uh, soon to have... To become or achieve glory greatness. or fame. Yeah. Stas. Uh, middle name Jeffrey. Jeffrey stands for... Dad. Dad. Stands for anxious man cleaning up in the lobby. <laughs> Panicking in the lobby, I think. Yeah. Yeah, stuff like that. So we got a lot to talk about as far as that goes. Also, headlines. We'll be getting into the empty news headlines, including an incredible bear story. Uh, you're not going to want to miss the bear story. If you love music as I do, um, you will want to hear the bear story. And we'll get to that in just a few minutes if you're, really, if you're, if you're all obedient and you just sit quiet. If you're good. If you're good, we'll get to the bear story in a few minutes. But uh, There's a lot of talking. It's just not going to happen. Let's just say it's a breaking and entering that turns into a musical. It's amazing. But first, to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on around the country? House of Representatives Majority Whip Steve Scalise was among those injured when a gunman opened fire in Alexandria, Virginia this morning, according to multiple reports. The The shooting took place... During a practice for the GOP congressional baseball team, how do you, how good do you think that team is, Matt? I'm going to bet not very good. Congressional baseball, two Capitol Hill. Well, they were practicing, trying to get better, right? Yeah. Two Capitol Hill police agents were also reportedly shot. The shooter, who is in police custody, has been taken to a hospital, according to CNN. Scalise's office uh, released a statement saying that he is undergoing surgery and in stable condition. Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona, who was at the practice, recounted the scene to ABC News. I wanted to get to Steve laying out there on the field, but while there were bullets flying overhead, he goes, I couldn't, he said, adding that the shooting went on for 10 minutes at least. Are you serious? He just sat there just spraying Yeah, they the said he down. kept loading and reloading his gun, man. They had some sort of, uh, as they, one, one report from a, a senator I saw on the AP was he had a, some sort of rifle and a lot of bullets. So, kind of scary. Crazy. Just trying to play some Boy, baseball. One, so one person was shot? Uh, five, injured. Oh, my word. That's crazy. The, the, the representative of a way, couple of police and some aides apparently were. What, were, cuts, were, why, were why were they practicing baseball in the middle of the day? It's not in the morning. This happened like at, between like 7 and 8 o'clock in the morning. I know. Like, hello? What? When, when uh, are you supposed to do it? Aren't you at work then? No, not yet. They didn't get to get to the Capitol till like nine or ten. We're the only ones that work this early. Yeah. Oh, oh! I thought everyone was no. up this early. No, no, no. Well, no. who's listening to us then? The people getting ready to go. And oh, okay. On, the way, on the way to go play ball. Another news: A manhunt underway for two inmates accused of killing two guards in Georgia on a prison bus Tuesday morning. A reward of sixty thousand dollars being offered for information leading to the arrest of the fugitives: forty-three-year-old Donnie Russell Rowe and twenty-four-year-old. Ricky Dubois, Georgia Bureau of Investigation spokespeople say the amount is likely to increase. My biggest worry is that they're going to kill somebody else, says the county sheriff. Georgia Governor Nathan Deal said he is committed to using every state resource necessary to capture these men. They overpowered the guards 
took their weapons, shot them. The bus had 33 prisoners on board. I'm not sure what happened to the rest of the prisoners. Holy cow. Usually it's like prison break. Everyone right. takes off. They're all just sitting sit. still, yeah. One of the two inmates then uh, killed, killed the guards. We're still desperately looking for these individuals. They're armed with the guns they took from the police and are dangerous. So they're out there still. Well, I guess you don't want to run and then be complicit in a double homicide. Yeah. The minute you run off the bus, you're... It's just adding more you're in the to, game. to the chaos. Um, uh, another story. The NYPD looking for two men in connection with an alleged assault by avocado oh, at a yeah. deli near Yankee Stadium last month. Police say before 5 a.m. on May 29th, the two men started throwing avocados and bananas at employees at a deli in the Bronx section of New York following a dispute over a food order. This has been happening recently. Yeah. There was chicken nuggets the other day. I know. Someone wasn't happy with like their chicken sandwich as the chicken sandwich was getting cold on the right, floor. They right. were fighting. Um, the victim suffered lacerations and fractures to his face and a broken jaw. He was taken wow. to the hospital in stable condition. Police uh, say the suspects fled, but they don't know where they went, so they're looking for help with that. But avocados and avocado bananas. And bananas. And finally, yeah. a story that's timely for the show. Okay. Massachusetts woman who had no idea she was pregnant unexpectedly gave birth on a street Monday. Oh, boy. Christine Harvey of Maiden, Massachusetts. Was, she said she was in so much excruciating pain that she had arranged for her friend to give her a ride to the hospital, but she never made it. Instead, going into labor and giving birth to the newborn on the street, Harvey told her uh, boyfriend that she was experiencing intense cramps, not realizing they were actually contractions. She went from here to there, and a baby came out, the boyfriend told the news. (laughs) Okay, she went from here to there, and a baby came out. (laughs) Before first responders arrived at the scene, she gave birth to a six-pound Six ounce baby girl. Holy cow! And but what a tiny little baby compared to Jeff Simpson's baby. Right. Jeff's baby came out like. Ugh, my wife always huge. doubts. My wife always doubts people who say they didn't know they were pregnant. I know. How do you not know that? You're like nine months of. She's like, pregnancy is tough. But how many it's times a, have you? How many times have you made the mistake that someone was pregnant and said, "You know what? How's the baby? When's the baby due?" Just once. See, so it's easy to mistake. So embarrassing. Jeff's story, I think, is better because they waited and waited and waited, and they knew the baby was coming. They waited and waited and waited and waited and waited, just waited and waited. And they're like, we want to get in as close to the delivery as we can. You do understand this happened over the course of, what, like two and a half, three hours? So that's not waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, I think you really ought not look at it about the last few hours. Look at it over the the seven days preceding that from when she was overdue. Do you know what this is? What? It's the, it's the problem of movie theaters because you get your reserved seat, right? So yeah. you don't have to wait in line. So you try to time it so you get there so you don't have to sit through all it's the true. commercials oh, and yeah. stuff. So this, it's that mentality. It's it. We're uh-huh. just trying to time it. You get there right on time. and But Jeff got caught wrong. in traffic. He got caught in traffic. Wrong. And he got caught in line trying to get a hamburger. And then the next thing they know, they're delivering in the nasty lobby. Alternative facts. I'll just stop. I'll get some corn nuts. It'll be fine. We have plenty of time. Did you guys eat corn nuts? I don't think you're supposed to eat before you deliver a baby. No, no, no. Not corn nuts. Did you Did you have a soda while you were waiting? <laughs> <laughs> I had a specialty drink. <laughs> well, we're glad your wife is healthy and happy and cute little Stanislav, a.k.a. Stas. That's not his name. I know. I'm just but, kidding. Yeah. Stas is, is alive but and As well. you said, he would probably try to say it. I like that name. Often. It's really cool. He's going to, he will be an incredible Russian spy. He'll probably be a senator, <laughs> the way this country's going. At least you know he'll be famous. <laughs> he'll be in all the spy movies. Hey, uh, crazy story for you today about a disgruntled man releases bed bugs in a main uh, city office. 
The city manager in Augusta, Maine, says a mun- at the municipal office building had to be sprayed for bed bugs after a man threw a cup of the pests onto an office counter. About 100 of them scattered off. Ugh. City manager William Just... Briggio says the man apparently complained Friday to the code enforcement office about bed bugs at his former apartment. Then he left, but returned after he showed the cup of bugs to a manager at the, his new apartment. He was told he couldn't live there. Look, I've got bed bugs. These are from my apartment. So Briggio says the man let the bed bugs loose in the general assistance office where he was asked to form uh, for a form to request assistance and apparently was told he didn't qualify. Bed bugs Ooh. doesn't qualify. Okay. All right, then. I'll, give, I'll be back. This sounds like a I'll be villain back. from the old Batman series mm-hmm. or something. Look out. He's packing bed bugs. Have you ever had bed bugs? No. I have. That makes sense. Like currently? Or no, 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 no. Okay, this was now. in Russia. Oh, I bet they're horrible. We had to move. Do they bite? We had to move. They uh, they bit my friend, but uh, not me. So if somebody he was, like... He was a bit larger than me, but yeah. So at night, uh, would someone tuck you in and say, hey, Jeff, don't let the bed bugs bite? <laughs> did that help? And they didn't. Didn't they? <laughs> no, they didn't bite me. Thanks, Grandma. So apparently it did help. So it totally helps. That's pretty nasty, though. All of a sudden, bed bugs, or like it'd be like head lice, right? So, if somebody threw head lice on you, at that point, everything must burn. There's no, I yeah, mean, yeah, but what do you, you burn your head? Burn well, your you hair? You got to shave your hair oh. off. You, you have to go through the car wash three or four times. You got to move. Brush. You got to wash everything that you own, or just wrap light it, in it on fire. And you have yeah. to comb your hair over and over and over and over if you have lice. Ugh. Just shave it off. Actually, you just hover over the person and you pick at them and eat them. Yeah, you're not a <laughs> monkey. Uh, speaking of monkeys, uh, this story has nothing to do with a monkey. A bear breaks into a home, but of all the things the bear could, you'd think it would like go to the pantry, get a lot of honey, get a lot of you know, get some fruit snacks, get all the food that you know bears love. But instead, this bear uh, decided to play the piano. Here's a little audio. That bear's got bear, chops. Stop that. Stop my That's exactly what one bear did inside the residence in Colorado. When homeowners returned to their home, <laughs> she's, she's so frustrated. She discovered that they had a bear in the kitchen. Their kitchen had been trashed. And assuming it was a burglar, they called the police who eventually suspected the intruder was an animal. That's when they inquired about home security surveillance, and they asked to review the footage. And upon looking at the footage, they saw the bear roamed around the living room. And at one point, you could see the bear played the piano. You know what this is? What? It's the country bear jamboree from Disneyland. It's exactly what it is. No. That's exactly what was it is. Was he animatronic? No. They say oh. it was a real bear, but... Maybe I, he was inspired I by think, that. Well, I think, I, yeah. He the, saw a bear mm-hmm. succeeding in life. In a country bear jamboree. He's yeah. like, I could do that. Do you know how hard it is for a bear to play root beer rag? Maybe it was the country bear jamboree gang because it sounds like more than just the piano. Yeah, no, I think they did. Somebody brought in a drum set. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Can you imagine being at a Billy Joel concert and he pulls this out? It's like, no, really? I want you to play, uh, you know, they call, my life. They, yeah. I want oh, you to play my life. Just stick to the hits. <laughs> Just stick to the hits. They call it Root Bear Rag. That's the new name of it.
That's funny. Thank you. Very little. Uh, we'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to be talking about uh, – you know, how to learn about, learn from your life. Your life has a lot to teach you. Many of us don't ever take a break to actually smell the roses. So what has life taught you so far? Stick with us. We'll walk you through it. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, you know, every, we live these lives. Life isn't easy, but man, there's a lot to learn and a lot that we are learning. There's a lot of wisdom we can take out of life and even maybe reframe our lives to be more of a learning experiment than, you know, necessarily something about right or wrong, good or bad, happy or unhappy. What if we could turn everything into a learning and uh, so who better to help us with that than Bob Taby? Bob Taby is a LCSW, a counselor, a social worker, author of 10 books, and uh, just has been writing. He's a prolific writer. He's been in, published in over 300 magazines and journal articles. Today he's here to share an article that he wrote uh, titled, What Has Life Taught You So Far? Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thanks a lot, man. I'm glad to be here. Talk about it. I mean, life is not easy, right? But the the funny thing is, is we are learning, and we're. It, it's almost like humans are inherent learners, aren't we? From birth, yeah, we're growing, yeah, we're well, learning. Absolutely. You know, I, I remember hearing a long time ago that you know problems are all about lessons. You know, once once you get the lesson that the problem's trying to teach you, the problem goes away. You know, it's so and true. I know for practical experience, and probably you do too. You know, the first time you try to change your oil on your car and you screw it up you learn pretty quickly that uh, there's a lesson here and I get better at it. Yeah, and every time and then but I guess it's almost like we we feel like it should be everything should be more easy, more natural. We we have this weird, I guess now social media is not helping because every time I look on social media I see how everybody else has a better life than me. How yeah. how do we make learning part of life? Well, I think that you know, I think part of it is is, you know, slowing down enough and kind of asking that question. You know, I, I work a lot, for example, with couples and do a lot of couples therapy, and I know you're familiar with that yeah. as well. And you know, when 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 they kind of when the couples of them are sitting on my couch in my office, are kind of talking about or kind of running through the argument they had on Saturday night. What I usually find myself saying is, okay, what's the moral of the story of this argument? You know, what did you learn from this argument? You know that, and it's usually about two things. It's about you know, what is it the problem that we need to solve, but also what is it we need to learn about how we communicate so we don't have the argument each every and every time. And I think life is that way. You know, it's kind of a process of elimination. And if you kind of have the attitude that there's something to learn in here, if it's not about, you know, I remember hearing somebody, I think it was Anthony Robbins or somebody said, you know, you know your life is working for you. It's not working against you. Hmm. And a lot of us, you know, it's easy to get the idea that life's working against me all the time, and I'm always struggling against life. And does that, and, I guess, does that mindset matter? Does it matter if you think life is working against you uh, versus life is working for you? Absolutely. Because it, it so. sets you I up, doesn't so. it? It sets I, you up long-term for what you get out of life. Absolutely. Yeah, I think, I mean, that's, you know, it's all about attitude. <laughs> a lot of things are. But I think that's absolutely true. You know, if you if you see a problem as a challenge... You know, rather than somebody kind of uh, kicking you in the butt, if you see problems as opportunities to learn something new and you get better at it. You know, I tell my kids, I have kids who are grown and they're adults, you know, I'm, I'm, well, I look back on my 
20s and 30s, and I go, oh, my God, you know? Yeah. You know, I wish I had yeah. the body of a 20 or 30-year-old, yeah. but in terms of how, you know, how much I've been able to kind of cull from life, you know, at my age, I'm in much better shape than I was back then. Mm. It's so true, and you you almost you don't want to go back. You you would love to go back to have health, or but yeah. boy, to go back and to go back, especially at that level of not knowing, uh, not not worth it. Do you think it's natural? Do we do we are we kind of either a natural learner, optimist that maybe sees life as as bringing us the lesson, or is this something that that we can intentionally learn and grow into? So I, I think for a lot of, I mean, I think there's. You know, again, you know, research shows people are born with certain kind of temperaments and, you know, family history and whether you're, you know, prone to depression and things like that. But I think absolutely you can learn it. You know, my style tends to be cognitive behavioral kind of therapy. And, mm. you know, it's about it's about how do you think, you know, you you controlling your brain rather than your brain controlling you. You know, you being able to kind of put a good you know, different spin on what's happening to you. If you do that enough, you change your brain, you know, and if you do that enough, you begin to have a different view of life. You know, one of the, and the research is kind of borne out, you know, one of the real, a real simple but common uh, aid for people who are struggling with depression is 10 minutes before you go to bed at night, write down all the positive things that happen. And what you want to look for is little stuff, you know, like, the sun was out, that somebody opened the door for me at the bank, you know, that somebody complimented, you know, the tie I was wearing, whatever it was. And it helps you train your, it's not so much that you're kind of feeling the feelings of that, but you train your brain to notice that, Mm. you know, you do it every night for a few weeks and then you begin to actually notice the little stuff that's good. Yeah, you too. Yeah, you're yeah. you're you're dialed into it now. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, a lot of people are dialed into the negative. You know, yeah. I read something just the other day that I, you know, just evolutionary wise, we're kind of our brains are wired to what it's like four or five to one to notice negative things. Yeah, just because that's how you survive. You know, out in the wild, that's how you survive. You got to look for predators and look around corners and whatever. And so we got to work hard to look for the positive. It's so true. I mean, really, I mean, flowers are beautiful, but snakes could kill you. So your body would naturally say, watch out for snakes. Absolutely. And you're not going to see the flowers when they're coming around the corner. So true. Now, you also, in your article, you talk about that midlife, people at midlife, um, statistically, according to the research, are are generally more happy than those in their 20s and 30s, which which seems almost counterintuitive. It's like midlife is when life is kind of really pressing down on you. So how come they're happier? Well, I think a lot of it is, I mean, there are struggles at midlife. I've met people, and I'm sure you have too, you know, the the classic midlife crisis is where you're starting to kind of reevaluate your life. But hopefully, by the time you get to midlife, um, you've learned how to navigate life. Yeah. You know, you've learned lessons. You know, the, you know the, the senior partner at the law firm has learned a whole lot more than, you know, the brand new uh, law school graduate, you know, and... You know, he can take things in stride, and he has a sense of perspective, and he has a sense of skill that the other guy hasn't just caught up with. Mm. And, you know, and you do this in the same thing, you know, in terms of relationships, you do this in terms of, you know, parents, you know, they struggle with their first kid in terms of being parents because it's all brand new. Yeah. You know, by the time they have the third kid, yeah, you know, much better shape. <laughs> but you've also, you've also had so many successes, and you realize the successes don't 
quite matter. Like, I mean, we, we build everything up like, well, I mean, when I'm finally a partner in the law firm, life is going to be so much different for right. me. And by midlife, you're a partner and life's not that different. So you, right. you realize right. that, oh, okay. Yeah, and that's, and, that's, and that's the midlife crisis part, you know, yeah. where you go. I, I've, I've met a lot of folks, uh, you know, I remember seeing somebody a long time ago who, he was a doctor or something, and um, he was in his 50s, and, you know, he was just struggling, you know, and he was struggling with his marriage. And, like, the second time I saw him, he, you know, he said, you know, I am just tired of being good. <laughs> I'm tired, I'm tired of, of living I'm a good, healthy life. I'm tired of doing what I should do yeah. all the time. You know, and he kind of ran his life with all these rules in his head, and he kind of ran his life by, you know, following them, and he felt guilty if he didn't, and he kind of felt stretched in a lot of different directions. You know, and by the time he's 50, he's got, I got you know, and I got 20 years left. Do I want to keep doing for the next 20 what I've been doing for the last 20? Hmm. Sometimes it's yes, but a lot of times it's no. I need to tweak it. Yeah, that's you know? a and big deal. And for a lot deal. of folks I see, it's about, they're tired of the shoulds, and they need to move towards what they want. Is, and, and how does that tie to happiness? Because so much of our life is about the shoulds. Um, right. And I mean, but there's something really interesting about being a 19 or a 20 year old where sometimes you're not even buying into the shoulds either. You're just you're just living free and hard. But, well, you're doing the anti should. Yeah, the anti should. <laughs> really? No, that's a great <laughs> way to put it. Is yeah. so, but but is there a correlation then? Um, I mean, you, I mean, you still want to be a decent, good person, oh, but absolutely. I guess, but I guess, so what's the correlation to happiness? How do we, how do we, how do we not just do the shoulds, uh, but get stuff done and be healthy and happy? Yeah, I, th- I, I think you know w- w- an exercise I often have. Some of my clients do that when they're kind of at that point is, you know, if they want to shake the shoulds and, uh, you know, that's understandable because it feels oppressive and they feel like they're the the, part of the problem here is they they feel like they're not owning their own lives or too much of themselves have either not been have been left to the side of the road somewhere along the line or they never really had it cultivated. You know, when I Mm -hmm. see couples and again, you're familiar with this, you know, at at some base level. When people are coming in for some kind of couples therapy, they're individuating. Yeah. You know, they've been married X number of years, and they're at a point where too much of themselves has been lost. You know, too much of themselves has been watered down. Too much of themselves has been out of balance. They've been too much on the parent side or the work side or whatever, and they need to get it back. And, um, you know, and that's a struggle. How do they do that? How do they do that and still stay within the relationship? That's a challenge. I think part of it is you go from the shoulds to your own values. Yeah. You know, this is where you you sit down with yourself uh, and a pad of paper and a pencil, and you start going, what do I really believe? You know, what's really important to me? And you don't want 500 values. You want 10. Yeah. You know, or maneuverable. Or something something, you, yeah. But you want something that defines your own integrity. Mm. You know, that's kind of coming from you and not from your parents, you know, somebody else. They kind of come from your own heart, from your own gut. And then if you follow those and you live your life close to that, then I think you're, you know, are you going to be happy camper 24-7? No, but I think you're feeling that you're running your life. Yeah. Is, is what gives you that sense of satisfaction. And the sense that, again, I'm controlling it. You know, there's not some voice in my head that's telling me what to do and beating me up when I don't do it. So true. Yeah. And, it's and, a voice of, of kind of integrity that's telling me this is what's important to me. Yeah, you're lying, and, and you're you actually 
to me, it almost now feels like now the rubber meets the road. Now you're you're actually in the groove of your life. That's right. That's yeah. cool. That's yeah, really and cool. And again, if not now, when? You know, yeah. That's kind of the challenge. Well, and uh, let's do this, Bob. Let's take a break and come back because I want you to walk us through kind of how we can – because you just described being intentional about our values. How can we be intentional about what life is teaching? I know you've got some great insights as to uh, how we can actually learn the lessons life is handing us. Stick with us more with Bob Taby after this break, learning what life has taught. Welcome back. We are talking about uh, learning from life, what it has to teach you. Uh, You're here, right? You're experiencing life. You're going through it anyway. Man, maybe you could make it more enjoyable, more, um, more pleasurable, even in the hard times, if you could turn it into a learning experiment. Joining us uh, to talk about that is Bob Taby. Bob Taby is an LCSW, a counselor, does a lot of uh, psychotherapy, but uh, really is a cognitive behavioral therapist as well, and um, is uh, is talking today about how you can actually take life and, and in an intentional way, go about processing learning. And uh, Bob, we appreciate you being here. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Again, Bob Taby's website, go to BobTaby, T-A-I-B-B-I.com, and you can get uh, all of his information about his workshops, everything he does. Bob, talk about how we, we take, how we actually intentionally learn yeah. from life. Yeah, we, I, as we were talking about before, I mean, a part of it is kind of having that kind of curious kind of attitude about, you know, how come this happened and what, what am I learning from it? One of the things I talked about in the uh, article I wrote recently, and an exercise that I've used for, for several years with folks is um, uh, it's kind of paper-pencil exercise that, that that's helpful. Yeah. So so the way you run down, it, it's fairly simple, but it's kind of it can be really powerful. So what you do is you write down on top of a piece of paper, you know, what has life taught me? And you, you, you write it down. You're not going to do computer stuff because that mm. makes you all yeah, <laughs> perfectionistic. So you just got to write it down on paper. And then what you want to do is kind of do a mental review of your life. You can do it chronologically. You can just kind of wait for stuff. But you, what what you want to do is ask yourself what's what, what are what are ten important emotional experiences in my life. Huh. And what you're looking for is you're going to kind of do this kind of mental review and kind of step through your childhood or your young adulthood or teenage years. And what you're looking for is to see what just kind of pops up in your head. And you're looking for things that have an emotional punch to them. You'll know what it is when you get this emotional punch. And it may be something as simple as, you know, the time I tried out for the school play and I didn't get a part, hmm. you know. Or it could be something my mom said to me when I was six years old and I was late from whatever's. Or it could be something big, you know, when my grandmother died or whatever. Um, but you want to look for – and you don't want to have a 1,000. You just want to have, like – eight to ten things, but you want to look for these kind of key points in your life. And again, look for the ones that are emotionally powerful, not just don't go on autopilot. Yeah. Just think about when my dad died or something. And you write them down. You've got to make a list. Now, the idea here is you're, you're going to look at it kind of with your rational brain, your analytical brain. You, it, this is not an exercise in kind of re-traumatizing yourself and kind of 
going down the emotional rabbit hole of that that experience. It's more about looking at it and going, okay, as you go through each one, you're going to do two passes on this. The first one is, what did this event, what did this experience teach me about other people? What did it teach me about life in general? You know, and so here you may find, you know, you got to, you know, I didn't make the school play and you need to try harder Hmm. or, you know, you can't be special all the time or something. Yeah. You know, or, you know, when grandma died, you learn that people can be compassionate when others are suffering or that, you know, life is fragile. Something you want to see, and you don't want to belabor, but you want to think about it and see what kind of pops up in your head. The second pass is what is it? What does it teach you about you? You know, what did you learn about you? Well, maybe I need to try out for things, even though I may not get it. You know, mm. maybe I need to learn how to take risks. Maybe I need to, you know, speak up and not bite my tongue and hold on to things. And so you kind of go through the whole list and then look at the whole list and are there one or two messages that are really coming across? You know, are there themes here? You know, again, this is the idea. What is your life trying to teach you? You know, I believe, you know, everybody's got a bunch of little problems, flat tires and kids running, you know, getting sick and things like that. But there's also themes in your life where you're, you're struggling with one or two big things. You know, it's... It has a lot of different faces, but you have one or two things that you keep bumping your head into, hmm. you know, and so what is that theme, you know, and a lot of times it is as simple or, or as hard as I need to speak up, you know, I need to take risks, I need to let other people know how I feel, I need to give up control, you know, I need to be less critical of myself, something. But that, again, you're looking for what's, what's the message. You know, and again, you take your time with this, and it can be emotionally powerful. But you're looking, you're looking again to to. But the idea that there's something here, and, and there's something for life to teach you. But it's coming. What's interesting is, I mean, it's coming from you, right? So it's from it, you, absolutely. So what's so cool about this is your. If you see a trend, if you see a theme. The right. theme is you. This is your brain is Absolutely. is basically communicating. There's a theme here, and if you're if you wrote down those ten things and then you derived those ten lessons and those became your theme, that became your theme. That is you telling you what right. you need to know. Yes, and th- and that's why I'm saying it's really important to kind of do it with your the kind of rational side of your brain. Yeah, you, know, you don't want to get into your emotional brain where it's oh it's you know the story of this is that everybody always you can't trust anybody or you're always gonna. Yeah. Why bother? It's not about that. It's about you know. There's something else here, and that's why you you want to learn that. And 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 I and again, you know, it's it's you know, I I'm sort of fascinated with the idea of you know, you have a relationship with your life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you have a relationship with yourself. Now, some people have lousy relationships with themselves. You know, they're always beating themselves up. They're always self-critical. They're always kicking themselves. You know, and but. But that's something you can work on. Right. You know, and and it is kind of a dialogue. You know, it's kind of like, okay, my wife is trying to tell me something. I have a relationship. How are we doing? <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how, how, are, how are me, how are me and, and myself doing? You know, how are me and my life doing? Does it matter if when you make your list of the 10, you know, emotionally significant or important points, 
What if they're all negative? I mean, well, they're, they're, they're probably are. A lot of them are going to be negative. Or it could be like gradu- I graduated from college, sure. which was something I never thought I could do or whatever. Absolutely. But it, but a lot That's of them could be like. I got messed over in that business by that guy. Absolutely, I got yeah. yeah. So, do, yeah, I, but you I, don't want to suspecting the fact that they will be. You know, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I would, what I've done this with folks. You know, sixty percent or sixty or seven percent of the things they write down are going to be negative. Yeah, you know, they'll throw in their wedding. They'll, you know, and does it matter? It may not matter, right? Because if if it's emotionally significant, it's yeah. communicating to you. Yes, yes. And again, the fact that yourself, you, what you just said, you're self-selecting. Yeah. You know, you're kind of pulling out of, you know, I'm always fascinated by the idea that, you know, when you look back on your, on your past or you look back through your childhood, I, you know, I, I, I've done it. You probably have too. You know, I talk to my kids, they have, their view of their childhood is totally different than mine. You know, they, everybody walks out with like a dozen or two dozen yeah. memories and we're on different pages. You know, there's some overlap, but out of everything that happened in your life, you know, you 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 pick a handful, mm-hmm. and you hold on to them. And generally, because they're all connected, you know, there is a theme to them. You know, there's a story, there's a narrative that kind of runs through your life. You know, that you tell to yourself and you tell about life, and that's what you're kind of trying to draw out here. Mm-hmm. Being aware of it then helps you either to realize what is the message and what's the lesson learned. Well, what do I need to change? You know, what is what, what is it I need to kind of step up and do differently if I don't want to keep repeating same old mistakes? So, so the final point is, once you look at the themes, uh, what do I need to do to incorporate the lesson yes. into the life? Yes. Because I guess that's the point we might miss is we might see the theme that I'm the oppressed, beaten down, always taken advantage of person. Right. Um, but if that's the theme, there's a lesson here. Right. Yeah, and yeah, what's, what, what's, again, we're back to what's the moral of the story, you know? What, what do I need to do not to be the oppressed person? Maybe it's, I got to step up and speak up and push back. Maybe it's about my attitude. Yeah. You know, I just need to not kind of see myself as always being the victim and always being trapped. And then how would you tie this back to our earlier discussion about values? Because if I'm a person that doesn't want to play the victim, but the lesson I've learned is that, man, I sure play the victim a lot, then right. I guess I could go back to my values and say, I don't, this doesn't align to my values. No wonder right. I'm less happy. Yeah, and, and I, 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 I kind of look at, you know, defining your value as kind of laying out a blueprint. Yeah. You know, you know it's, it's kind of becomes the, the blueprint, it becomes the foundation for who you want to be. You know, again, rather than a reactive life, rather than an inherited life based on what other people told you you should be, you're going to be have a proactive, created life. Hmm. And you that know, seems inherently something that will inherently create more flow for you, more positive psychology, more positivity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, is it going to be hard? Yeah. And is it going to be hard to make changes? And is it going to be hard to kind of break your own patterns? Yeah, sure. Sure. But again, if, again, if it's, it's the same theme, if you're coming from you, you know, if you're coming from your own gut level beliefs and values, then, then, you, then you have the courage to step up and do it. Then mm-hmm. you have the motivation. Because you're not just kind of doing it to appease other people. You're not just doing it to stay out of trouble. You're not just doing it because you should. Yeah. 
is what what is amazing too it seems like to me what what you're demonstrating to us is the power of the human to to really write their own story to absolutely this is all about just writing your own story and you can turn it into a drama or a comedy you absolutely. can turn it into a tragedy um but it but it's the intentional side of write the story Absolutely. And, and you cannot not have a story. Yeah. You may not be fully aware of it. I mean, the idea behind this exercise is to be aware of the story, but you, always, you automatically have a story. You know, it's not, you know the, it's not the events that happen. It's your story about the events that make your life. So it's true. what you say next to yourself. Yeah. Is, is there any harm to, to thinking about this daily? I mean, um, you can see how some people, yeah. you know, would just be obsessed with the, I've got to keep thinking about this. But w- I guess we're already, if we already feel like we're a loser in life, we're already probably having that thought daily. So Absolutely. if you're going to correct it, it almost seems like you'd, you'd have to do it daily. Yeah, and that's where back to, you know, the, the kind of the depression exercise of what do you look, you look for things that are, that are impo- you know, positive in the day. But also it is about, yeah, what have, what have I learned today? Sure, that would be a great exercise. Hmm. You know, what, I, okay, another step on the path. What what new things have I learned about me and the world? Mm-hmm. You know, in a good way. Again, not just the old one. Yeah, boy, you're, you always get screwed. Yeah, so you don't want to repeat the whole story, but but actually, kind of be it, 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 that. You know, again, being conscious, being proactive, being mindful, being deliberate, hmm. rather than going on autopilot. You know, rather than kind of going dulled and and uh, no, and and then back to your earlier point of every night going to bed, looking for the signs or the blessings or the positives that it's happening. Right. That then you're then you really you'll start picking up the signs that you're becoming what you want. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and it's all. And again, I, I, I don't know. I, I remember seeing that that documentary on uh, called Happy or something like that. Yeah. And they, yeah, you know, these people, you know, this this poor guy in India is living in this shack, and you know, he he has no shoes, and he pulls this this cart, you know, around Delhi, and he says, "I'm a happy man." Mm. You know, I come home, my kids greet me. I got a great house. I mean, mm-hmm. his house has got three sides. <laughs> You know, it gets rough when the rain, when the monsoon comes. We get a little wet, but it's yeah. a great house. You know, and he feels like he has neighbors who are supportive. And I mean, people in people in third world countries in many ways are happier than they are. They, they just they, well, I remember reading the statistics. You know that the depression. You know, the depression rate where people actually say they're depressed is the United States is eighteen percent. Where we're second in the world to France, where it's twenty-two percent, but you get third-world countries, it's like three percent. Or they don't have any; they don't have a concept of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like you can't be depressed. This is life. Right. It's just life. Right. right. Yeah. 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 Holy cow! What would you say is the one thing, Bob? I always ask for the one thing that makes the biggest difference today. Something that every one of us could go home and do today that would um, that would actually make us feel, you know, connected to life and like that life is meaningful. Yeah, I, I think it's what, what what we just said. You know, the notion that you can create your own story. You know, that life is not something that happens to you, but something you create. You, that you can be a creator of your own your own life. Mm. You know, I remember remember that line from that movie Benjamin Button. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can change or stay the same. You know, and it's up to you. You can stop whenever you want, or you can keep going. And I and I absolutely believe that. You know, and if you're not happy, and the end of that that quote is, 
you know, if you find yourself, you know, I hope you're proud of your life. And if you find you're not, I hope you can start all over again. That's too. And when you think of the story, that makes sense. Yeah. Just start it again. Tomorrow's another day. Bob Taby's his name. Bob, thank you so much for your time. You can go to his website, bobtaby.com, T-A-I-B-B-I.com. Many books, 10 or so books, 300 plus articles he's written. And some pretty awesome insight about understanding yourself. We'll take a break, folks, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Man, you know what? Uh, there's uh, I've, I found that Benjamin Button quote he was talking about. Um, This is a letter to his daughter. He said, for what it's worth, it's never too late or in my case, too early to be whoever you want to be. There's no time limit. Stop whenever you want. You can change or stay the same. There are no rules to this thing. It's great advice. Stop or stay the same. You know, if if you want to keep being who you are, be who you are. There's no time limit until you die, of course. In, In Benjamin Button's world, there's a time limit. By the way, you're looking a bit younger. I'm starting to worry that maybe you've got the Benjamin Button syndrome. I totally do. Well, it's because my gallbladder, it's – I haven't been eating anything really of any substance or fat. Oh, you didn't hear. I don't have gallstones. I have sludge. I have have sludge in my gallbladder. I was going to, you know, applaud you on that, but then you said sludge and I wasn't sure if that was good news. Oh, it's great news. Is, now, is this sludge part of – is this the sludge that's found in Townton Abbey? No. No. Townton okay. Abbey is thriving, by the way. Nothing but money being made, 100 percent happiness. It's all good. Except there's sludge. So Except there's that. There's sludge in my gallbladder. <laughs> but uh, we figured out – my surgeon has now referred another surgeon. I, I, I spent the last month working with a surgeon that I didn't need to be working with. Somehow I got to a surgeon that specializes in cancer surgery, and I don't have cancer. So all I need is my gallbladder out. And when three tests later, when we figured that out, um, now I just know I've got sludge, and we just need to rip that little bile bag out. I just don't know what to think. You know, some people can't trust a president who sends out mean tweets. Yeah. I can't trust the mayor of a fictional town that has sludge. Boy, I'm sorry. You'll have to get over that. Hey, uh, that's uh, hour number two of the program. Go check us out on iTunes, on Stitcher, on BYURadio.org, or on MattTownsend.com. We're everywhere. We'll be back. Stick with us. Learning about life. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. This is the program where we help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. And today, happy Flag Day to you. Go out, fly your flag. This all goes back to uh, on June on June fourteenth, seventeen seventy seven. There was a resolution from the Second Continental Congress that the United States needed its own flag. Get that thing made. Thirteen 
uh, stripes alternating red and white, and uh, union uh, that the union would have thirteen stars on the flag, all in white in a blue field representing a new constellation. And then they said. Betsy Ross, we need 40,000 of these by next week. Betsy, you better get sewing. That's amazing. That That's sense cool. has been adjusted. Yeah. The resolution. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah now it's yeah. 50. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But still, a, still a, a representing a new constellation. And it seems like – Constellation? Yeah. It's like a new set of stars in the sky. Hmm. Interesting. The United States, 50 stars – by which the rest of the world can direct their life. Maybe 51. If Puerto Rico keeps their – Mexico? No, Puerto Rico. If they, huh. keep their, uh, if they keep their voting. They had a huge vote. 23 percent of the people turned out for it too. But again, it, again, it would then seem to like – it would have to be ratified by them, their 50 states. Well, yeah. I mean Congress has to yeah. vote on it and I don't know how big but, of a deal that would be. Well, and has Congress – what really do they vote on anymore? Nothing, really. They just fight. Can't we just make Canada the 51st state? We kind of are. I don't think they want to be. Yeah, but... They're kind of doing their own thing. But and, if they were the 51st state, then they could get rid of, you know, that silly play money that they have and... Oh. You know? <laughs> them is... They don't them even, is fighting They don't even use half their country. They just use the bottom half. Oh, yeah. The top's like an iceberg, so they're just like... Eh. Well, why would you... Yeah, why would you want to? Right. There's not... I mean, you could just store liquids up there, make... Drinks, have some ice. Snow cones, yeah. They need to go by Fahrenheit and not Celsius, too. <laughs> and miles and not If, uh, if you're a Canadian yeah. and you needed some ideas of how to make Canada better, just call the United States. We have, we have plenty, plenty of ideas for you. I guarantee you they won't be offended. No. You don't think so? Oh, no. They're very, so polite. Very nice about it. They're very nice people. We're going to get into all that fun. Today we should be talking about um, how to know it's time to get married. Don't you just ask her? Well, usually, yeah. Well, or she may tell you when it's time. Well, yeah, I mean. I mean, a lot of times the guys don't know until the bride is like, yeah, let's do this. It's time. And sometimes the father of the bride is telling you it's time to get married. Yeah. Yeah. Or not. Usually with a shotgun. In the same I've had though. clients, you know, that don't want their child to marry certain people. <laughs> and I've the, been there. They do everything they can, like whatever you can. Tip this thing over. Nah, not him. <laughs> when they come in, if you can get them fighting, that would be fantastic. Um, so we'll talk about how to know if you're ready or not to get married. Because the research, a lot of people think you have to have certain things lined up in order to get married. Or you have to cohabitate. Hmm. You have to do a lot of things. And the research is very clear about some of these things aren't important. And they don't actually make marriage better. What about money to live on? Interesting. You, you, money or not, you need to have the skills, right? You need to have the ability to be an independent earner. Okay. That's important. But a lot of people think, yeah, we got to have our student debt paid off before we can get married. Well, no, no, no. You just need to be able to work a budget yeah. so that you can live month to month because that's how you start, right? That's exactly. What I mean, about the love? Uh, Doesn't know, it all start there? That's in there too somewhere. Love in the 60s. and or This is the 70s. Uh, Robert Wagner – Driving up the 101. Is that what it is? Heart to heart. Oh, those were good days. Oh, man. I did so much growing up on watching The Love Boat, watching Dukes of Hazard, SWAT, Chips. Good days. Good days. Uh, we'll get to, uh, of they're, course. They're remaking SWAT, by the way. Oh, yeah. It'll be on CBS. Good stuff. Yeah. 
one of my favorite shows of all time. Um, uh, we will get to all of this fun. Plus, of course, BYU Sports Nation. They'll be joining us. Find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. We'll be doing a hero story, plus more empty news. Uh, empty news, MT news, all that straight ahead. But first to the real news. What's going on, Terry, around the country? So a gunman opened fire this morning on a baseball practice at a park in Alexandria, Virginia, involving Republican members of Congress, injuring several people, including at least one lawmaker, Steve Scalise, a majority whip, the majority whip, according to police and congressmen. The shooter has been identified as James T. Hodgkinson from Illinois. Okay. So there's a name. Uh, The wounded also included at least one Capitol Police officer and the suspected shooter, according to one law enforcement official. A police spokesperson confirmed the suspected shooter, this Hodgkinson guy, had been been shot and was taken to the hospital. Representative Mo Brooks of Alabama said he ran to the first base side and hid behind the batting cage as gunfire continued. He said Scalise crawled out to the outfield, leaving a trail of blood, and he was afterwards given liquids and pressure was placed on the chest wound that he had. Wow, chest wound? Chest wound. Senator Jeff Flake of Arizona told reporters that Scalise was awake after the shooting. Flake said it took almost 10 minutes to take down the shooter. Eventually, when the Capitol Police secured the area, Flake grabbed Scalise's phone and called his wife to tell her what had happened. The uh, gathering in the park was the final practice before Thursday night's scheduled game between the Republicans and the Democrats at Nationals Park. So this was the Republicans that were being shot at. The Democrats, I guess, practicing another time on another field. I gather. They probably ought to have security there. there. This could get crazy. As I was, uh, we talked in the break, uh, the reason security there was because Khaleesi is the majority whip. He gets a security detail. Anybody known as a whip whip. needs security detail. His job is to go around and make people vote on certain things. Yes. You will vote. U.S. officials are looking to heighten scrutiny of Chinese investments in artificial intelligence, in particular in Silicon Valley, to better shield projects viewed as important to national security. Reuters reports that unreleased Pentagon reports cautions against China skirting U.S. oversight in order to gain access to sensitive technology. Now the U.S. is looking at bolstering the role of the Committee on Foreign Investments in the United States, which reviews foreign acquisitions of U.S. companies that might affect national security. Analysts fear cutting-edge technologies developed in the U.S. could be used by Beijing or others to bolster its military capabilities and even push ahead in strategic industries. We're trying to protect huh. our country's developments from becoming the weaponized version somewhere right, else. Right, right. Smart, well, smart. basically so we can make weapons out of them. Hey, we're, we make our weapons, not you. NBA uh, final ratings are out. The finals average 20.4 million viewers a game. Wow. Which is uh, the most watched since 1998. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. And it went fast, really. It was, fa- it was a quick, it was pretty much dominated by one team, but the ratings were high because of who was there. That's cool. In other news, the TSA has begun testing the use of fingerprints as proof of identification and boarding passes at two airports in Atlanta and Denver. Uh, the program, which is entirely voluntary, allows TSA pre-check members to use the lines of their fingerprint finger pads to coast through security. Okay. Now, in the long term, this technology has a potential to eliminate the need for a boarding pass and ID altogether, the TSA writes on their blog. But during the opt-in testing period, the TSA will still need to subject willing uh, fingerprinted passengers to the standard ticket document check process is shown in their boarding pass and all that stuff. So if you are uncomfortable with the TSA having your fingerprints on file, you might have not have a choice forever. Biometric IDs and boarding passes seem to be the way of the future. JetBlue is already testing the facial recognition huh. software we talked about before. But so they, they have a demonstration on the article. Guy walks up to the gate, 
fingerprint on a pad. Boom. It takes about as long as if you have one of those credit cards that you slide into yeah. the credit card machine now. Yeah. Like you, you insert the, the the chip, the chip, and yeah. it takes a second, and then it beeps. About that long, and then the door opens and you walk through. But instead it, of all the other things you okay. have to do now. I, but okay, I get it. So then we know that that finger belongs to that person. Right. But it seems like a bigger problem is: does that finger make bombs and blow people up? Right. And I guess I didn't know it was a big security deal. That somebody's stealing your name to get on a plane. I thought it was more, are you guys terrorists that want to hurt people? Right. And I don't know if that's going to help that, is it? Well, we'll see. They're trying to streamline it because obviously the vast majority of people are not trying to blow a plane or right. cause some problem. But how do you do that and ensure that those type of people aren't in the mix? Mm. So who okay. knows? Finally, a minor league baseball team in Florida has planned an unusual Father's Day promotion. What? This week, the Jacksonville Jumbo Shrimp have added a second promotion to the usual Thirsty Thursday celebration. They're calling it the You Might Be a Father promotion, which comes with a free pregnancy test. Oh, brother. The team's website explains it like this. The test will let men know, as they pick this up on Thursday, if they need to return for the Father's Day game on Sunday. Oh. Is this a problem? Like, you may... You need a paternity test? Like, is this yeah. something that's going to well, draw the crowds? They're, they're, I don't know. Hundreds and hundreds of men show up for the paternity test. The test will be available upon request. Weird. I mean, I'm not just going to hand them out to everybody. I mean, but you, you walk in the door and you'll get you one. You know, that sounded really great in some marketing meeting in some ball team's yeah. office. But it was really one of the rules is, remember, whatever you say says more about you than everyone else in the room. So when somebody's like, hey, I think we ought to do paternity tests for the ballpark and let's just give free paternity tests away. I told you about the one from the ball, the uh, team just north of our location yeah. here in Provo in Ogden, Utah. The team there decided to have hourglass figure night Oh yeah, oh, to boy. celebrate the figure, the, the beautiful hourglass figure of certain hmm. females in the region. Oh, and, how'd that go? Uh, it didn't even go. It, huh. went, it went out on like uh, yeah. Twitter or a blog or something and then it was immediately shamed into just obliterated. It doesn't Remember, exist anymore. It always says more about you than anyone else. So Father's Night at the baseball stadium sponsored by Mari Povich. Yeah. It's uh, sponsored by Mari Povich. And you'll get all of your testing done. Friends of Mari get a discount. Multiple choice? <laughs> Crazy town. Hey, uh, a few more stories for you that we just – we got to get out there. One um, is – is kind of the idea. What do you give somebody that uh, that has everything? What I mean, what do you what do you what do you get them? Your love. Wow, I wasn't even going for that. It's it's hard because you got it. Father's Day's coming up, and your paternity dad, test, a paternity test. Yeah. That's what you get somebody that has everything, but. You can't get your 80-year-old grandpa a paternity test. No, no. No. So one of the things I've been, I've been thinking of doing is uh, giving this DNA test. There's a company that does DNA testing. And you, can, you do your DNA testing and then you find out where your family came from, where your ancestors lived. My mom gave us that about a year ago and I still have to spit in the thing. But I'm thinking that might be a great thing to find out. Like dad – but then all of a sudden what happens when you give dad a, a DNA test and you find out he's not even your father? That's Whoa. why paternity testing, you don't mess with this stuff. See, and I did that test. You did it. I'm showing you yesterday. You found out. I'm 60% Irish. Yeah, which is surprising to me. 
35% from Great Britain. Really? So I'm my family. You pretty much are the just... O- the other 5%? Don't ask. It says other regions. Other Ooh. regions like? Nether regions, then. No, mm-hmm. it just says other regions. I see. Nether regions. Yeah. <laughs> we understand. You guys are adding words there. Um, okay, crazy story here. Uh, man arrested after hiding motor oil and DVD in his pants. A man was arrested in Polk County, Florida. You won't believe it. Florida. Find the video. I saw this yesterday. The amount of motor oil this gentleman was able to hide in his jeans. Oh, wow. He's obviously so impressive. Well, he's obviously doing an entire oil change. First off, you're like, a convenience store has that much motor oil on the shelf? It's just supposed to be there just in case. We will we'll post the video on our Twitter feed, at Dr. Matt Show. You're going to want to see that. Uh, the guy is walking out with um, from 7-Eleven, by the way. He was parked, uh, the officer was parked in an unmarked car outside the 7-Eleven when he saw a man wearing baggy blue jeans walk into the store. And he went down the first aisle, put 15 quart-sized bottles of Penn's oil into his pants. Wow. That is a lot of oil. I mean, I think the most you were telling me, Jeff, you've ever put in your pants was uh, like like six quarts. Yeah. 15 is a lot of oil. That's a slow day, though. Yeah. Yeah. The detective says the man proceeded to put several discounted DVDs down his pants. I mean, while you're at it, if you're going to be changing your oil in your cars, you may as well have a DVD to watch. So he he stole a couple of DVDs as well. And then the detective approached him and confronted him about the incident. And he's like, what? What's in your pants? He's like, just my legs hurt. I got sore legs. They're hurt and they're rectangles now. <laughs> So strange. You know, uh, we were – we successfully – you know, at World Market, Marshalls, they ha- they used to sell – some of them still do – these yard-long tubes of licorice. Mm, yeah. And uh, we really wanted one of those uh, in a movie that we were going to see. Yeah. So my wife uh, put one of those down the leg of, of her pants and kind of just hobbled into the movie theater and uh, flash forward 10 minutes and, you know, four of us are sharing <laughs> one strand of licorice. And then a quart of oil drops to the ground, clink, and rolls down the movie theater floor. And your yeah. wife is proven to be somebody that steals oil. And then she had an Urkel moment. Yeah. Did I do that? <laughs> Awkward. Hey, by the way, that is the voice of Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Yes, he's back. His wife, uh, they had a beautiful uh, 28-pound baby boy. <laughs> May as well have been. Huge 10-pounder, 9-6? named Stoss. That's a studly name. Stoss Simpson. What's your name? Stoss. Stoss Simpson. That is an actor's name. It's pretty awesome. Which is interesting because Stanislav, which is the longer or real form of Stoss, means to become or achieve glory or fame. That is amazing. Uh, Stoss also means uh, lobby baby <laughs> in Latvian. So maybe he'll be a lobbyist. Yeah, he'll be a lobbyist. He's totally born in the lobby. Hey, we're going to take a break, folks. When we come back, Dr. Brian Willoughby from BYU is going to be joining us. Marriage ready or not? And uh, are you ready or not? We're going to get the latest research about what people out there think is essential to get married and then Brian's going to tell us the truth like what does the research actually show actually matters when you're thinking of getting married stick with us interesting insights 
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, Dr. Brian Willoughby is joining us. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University and uh, is has a brand new book coming out. Actually, it'll be out in August, I believe. Actually, July, next month. <gasps> it's here. Yeah. Your little baby. I know. Then you After can so relax long. and go do another one. That's right. It Maybe never... a little break first. Yeah. Take a little break, but it never, ever ends. No. Uh, Brian is here to um, talk about an article that he posted on RelateInstitute.com. Uh, and I had this yesterday, a, a, a couple in my office, that they they just they want to be sure they're ready to get married. Right. And one of them is, is concerned because he hasn't graduated yet mm-hmm. and he's got to have a job and debt. So right. – and the other is like, come on. I'm graduated, and I've I've got plenty of money for us. Let's right. just get this party started. Right. And so people, it almost seems like they'll do whatever they can to stall this. Sometimes, although although this is actually a, a very legitimate concern, huge right? concern is is we have this kind of assumption sometimes that when someone says, "Well, I'm not yeah. sure I'm ready," it's well, it's commitment. Yeah, issues. you're, you're just not. To come delay. on. But this is a, a growing trend now, particularly with couples in their 20s, young couples. Um, or young just individuals that are legitimately worried and wondering, am I ready to yeah. take that step? Am I ready to get married? Yeah. And you you actually and some of your professors, uh, as along with other professors at other universities, you've, you actually went out and surveyed right. what people think mm-hmm. you have to have to know you're ready. Yeah. Th- this is something that those of us that study marriage are really interested in because when we're seeing these trends in society. We see people are – delaying marriage in yeah. the U.S. and most countries, and we're trying to figure out why. And one of the things that is an obvious thing to look at is, well, what what are their criteria? What's stopping them yeah. or, or putting barriers in their way from them actually making that transition? What do they feel like they need to have in order to eventually get married? Yeah. Jason Carroll, by the way, was one of the leads on the team, I guess, and he's from BYU. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he's probably just down the hall from him, and you're like, hey, I'll take that. Yes. And you're yeah. like, I'm just going to write about that. Yes. Because yeah, you I, can totally do that. You're just trying to promote marriage. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we work together yeah. on this particular article. Jason and I um, study this this area together, and yeah. That's cool. That's what's cool about academia, because you can just partner up. You mm-hmm. can work together, but you can also – you need his learning. He needs yours. That's right. It's yep. cool. Good collaboration. Um, you. He, by the way, lives by me. So we Doesn't hang out. Okay. We hang out at church meetings. <laughs> no, he's a good guy. Um, talk about – okay, so there's six things that they ranked, mm-hmm. right, in order of importance to them. Right. But not all of them are as important as they would seem, and yeah. some are really important. Yeah, that was kind of the interesting thing is that these six things, some of them really line up well with the research. Yeah. So that, that's a good thing that yeah. you want to do that, and some of them not so much. This first one blew my mind because it to me this is – a real core competency. So the first one that they posted as one of the most important areas was interpersonal competency. Yes. But is that really what they said? Because that sounds like what you and Jason Carroll would say. <laughs> well, it's interesting. I mean, the specific items that they were responding to on this were actual interpersonal competencies. Like I can communicate openly with okay. my partner. Okay. I can respond to conflict well. Yep. Now, I think what you're getting at, though, is and what we didn't really get at in the survey was why did they rank that as important? Okay. So, so the interesting thing about this one is, yes, this is one of the most fundamental parts of marriage. Is this you is do want to have good communication skills and conflict resolution. However, based on other research that I've done, my guess is a lot of them are ranking these things so high, and this is something we've talked about before, not necessarily because they're thinking to themselves, well, because 
I want to be able to have this good communication with my partner and we need to have proper conflict resolution because marriage is going to have a lot of conflict. Yeah. They're worried about divorce and they're worried about having a marriage that doesn't make them personally yeah. happy. They're, so th- this is almost like I, uh, it's preventative. I don't want to yeah. be stuck. Yeah. And the issue is, is that when a lot of people say I want to have good communication skills and good conflict resolution skills, they understand that's important, but they don't necessarily understand what that looks like. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so this becomes almost this mythical unicorn out there right. of, I, I know I'm supposed to have it, and I know all my previous boyfriends or girlfriends, we haven't had it because we fought too yeah, much. Yeah, that's why we're not together. And now I, I can't quite figure out what that really means totally. or what, what I'm looking for. Well, and I found doing marriage education that it's hard to teach newly engaged people that are kind of still in la-la land mm-hmm. anything <laughs> because right. it's like they don't – they're not even having conflict yet. Right. Yeah, they're not having you know if they have any conflict at all, it's not it's major just like, it's stuff. It's cute. It's right? cute conflict. Yeah, because they're dating and you're trying to put yeah. your best foot forward, and yeah. so you're usually hiding the stuff that will mm-hmm. cause a lot of the yeah. conflict in the first place. So yeah, it, it's hard, um, but at least there is this sense that that they they recognize this is an important part of mm-hmm. healthy relationships. Do you buy into this idea that you need to you need to date long enough to fight, like to really have an issue? I, I would say you don't have to date long enough to fight, but you have to date honestly enough to fight. Oh, that's great because that could happen in the first right. – yeah, because you could be just a yes person for the right. first yeah. 10 years of a marriage. At least if you're dating to marry, you have to go into that dating process saying I need to be completely honest about who I am as a person mm. because if I'm trying to find my spouse, I need them to see who I am in real life yeah. and I want to see who they are in real life. And so this idea of trying to put this kind of fake persona out mm-hmm. there so that – I can try to win them over and I can hide all my faults. That might get them to the altar, but yeah. that might cause a lot of problems yeah. after. Year two, you're in trouble. Year right. or month two, you may be in trouble. So interpersonal competencies is what they want to see in a partner. Mm-hmm. And that actually holds up to research. That's right. that's important, right? Mm-hmm. The next one was family capacities. Yes. Is this what, the ability to have a family? Yeah. So it's it was items like the ability to have ch- um, to raise children, the ability to run a household, to so, want children, to I want guess. children. So there's there's a, a economic piece okay. to this one um, in a lot of ways. So just feeling like I'm I'm capable and able to have that marriage, have those kids, and raise them. And this is this is one that again sounds great and important. You know, certainly want to if you're going to take that step, particularly if children are going to come after a marriage, you want to be feeling like you're capable of raising them. But again, this is one where Below the surface, the research doesn't necessarily hold up as well because what a lot of these individuals and a lot of these young adults were telling us are, well, in order to raise a family – yeah, and this actually goes to with one of the other ones that we found, which was role transitions a little bit farther down the list, is, well, I need to graduate college. I need to have a good job. I need to have all my debt paid off as yeah, you said yeah. before. Um, and the research doesn't necessarily connect those things to healthy marriages at all. In fact, what the research tells us is that oftentimes – you know, not to say that education and socioeconomic status are not important in marriage. That is. Yeah. But if I get married and we're growing together through those transitions, that actually in some ways might create a more stable and healthy marriage than doing all those things as an individual oh, and, and then, then coming to together. Yeah. If you could, if you two together could work to pay off student debt mm-hmm. and do that early and young, that might be more valuable than never right. having experienced such a challenge. Yeah. This came up when I used to teach at the University of Minnesota. I would ask my my students, you know, when we were talking about marriage, what are the things you need to have <clears throat> before you get married? And, and they would say things like, well, I need to have my house paid off. Yeah. 
I need to have my kids' college education partially Fun. saved for before I even get married. Are you serious? Um, and, and, and we would talk about how, well, how long is that going to take? Yeah. You know, that's, that's going to take a long time. And yeah, you might be growing your financial resources in order to have resources when you're married. But the other thing you're doing for those, you know, maybe decade of your life as an adult is you're learning to be single. Yeah. You're learning how to operate in your daily life as a single person, independent, not, not having, having to, to make rely, a decision, not yeah. having to go to someone else anymore. And then suddenly making that transition, you know, when I'm 30 or 32 can be a lot more difficult sometimes than yeah. if I'm 23 or 24. And and now we're making those decisions together as a couple. That's true. And you have to distinguish because couple is different than individual. Right. Mm-hmm. And as long as you're an individual, I mean, independent being and you're not working together on something, then I guess you just become a better independent being. Yeah. And one of the things we find, particularly with those in their late 20s that are still single and and oftentimes still hoping to get married, is we have this fear that starts to to come up with that group that's not really there in their early 20s, which is this fear of how am I going to intermingle my life with another person? Yeah. Right? Because they they, they have this routine. They've got an established career at that point in their life usually. Um, they've got travel, and 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 it's not necessarily a selfish worry in the sense that well, you're going to come mess my life up. It's that well, all the people I'm dating are the same as me. They've got their career, they've mm-hmm. got their own life. I'm not sure how we're going to make this work yeah. anymore, and that, that's a big concern for a lot of. People. No, that's huge, and I I didn't think of that, and um, which makes it so. I mean, you can almost see that if you kept staying single too long, I don't know what mm-hmm. that too means. Mm-hmm. It it actually you might have a disability. Yeah. In fact, the research backs that up. It's it's around – I mean, depending on which study you look at, around 30, we start to see elevated risk of marital quality for people getting married after that. And again, not that people get married 30 or later are doomed. doomed. Right. um, But it is – it starts to become a risk factor. Hmm. I think that's one of the main reasons why. That if I'm in my 20s and I'm making decisions about graduate school and career, but I'm making them with a spouse. Yeah. Right? So it's not just what's best for me. What's best for you? Well, you know, maybe I would go over to this graduate school, but this one, you can get a job in your career. So let's go over here. And and now this is a joint decision that we've made. And now I'm getting used to making decisions that's best for my family, Hmm. not just for me. It's huge. And again, you don't see the dynamic of independent versus interdependent. Right. Um, One of the points that we do bring up uh, that was the third highest rated was intrapersonal intrapersonal mm-hmm. competencies, which is different than interpersonal. Interpersonal right. would be relationship, mm-hmm. right? Intrapersonal would be what? That's that's my ability to control my emotions, my mm. maturity, depression, anxiety. These are kind of my own issues. You knowing you. Yep, yeah. me knowing me. And to me, if if I were to rank these things, that would probably be number one yeah, that on seems, my list. And that seems like that would inform <laughs> interpersonal. Yeah this, yeah, this is the thing that I usually tell people about you know, if they ask me, well, what do I need to be if I'm ready? How will I know if I'm ready for, for a marriage? It's really about you. You know, do you have maturity? Do you have any mental health issues under control, mm-hmm. any addictions under control? Um, do you feel like you have, you know, any anger management? You know, so all these, we yeah. all have our own problems and issues. These are the things that, that I need to make sure that I'm a, basically it's really, am I a good spouse for someone? Yeah. Am, am I a good partner? Yeah. Instead of for looking someone? for the great partner that can help you be all this, you're right. saying be it yep. first. Yeah. And and that is really crucial 
the research supports that, you know, good couple formation research shows that, that that's really critical, that I have to be a good partner for hmm. this to work. And the, lately there's been research out, I guess, if, if it is valid here, about our maturity of our brain, how we're not even fully like mature mm-hmm. until we're 25 <laughs> anyway. Yeah. And so – I mean, it used to be that now people are more and more seem like they're saying, I just got to wait till I know who I am. Right. But knowing who you are is it's kind of what you're talking about. Yeah. But sometimes that's an illusion because right. you can't know who you are really until you've been married five years <laughs> with another person that right. is, you know, difficult at times. Yeah. I mean, then you know who you are. And, and like you're saying before, a lot of this is about being in tune with my own emotions. Yeah. Is, is do I understand when I'm getting angry, when I'm getting sad, and can I articulate that to another hmm. person? Because that's such a, a critical part of any relationship is being able to say, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm angry today and here's why. Yeah. You know, maybe it's about you. Maybe it's about something at work. And just being able to work through that with another person is a really important part of relationships. That's, huge. That's great stuff. Let's, uh, let's continue the discussion in a bit more with Dr. Brian Willoughby as we help you go through and understand, are you ready to get married or not? What are the, what's general population saying? And what do the researchers say? Stick with us. Welcome back. We're talking about uh, how to know if you're ready to get married or not. And who better to help us than Dr. Brian Willoughby, Associate Professor of the School of Family Life at BYU. And uh, he has a great website. you got to go check out drbrianwilloughby.com um, where you can get his latest writings and insights. And I'm sure when he launches his book in July, it'll be all over that site as well. Yeah. I think I just put it up, actually. Did you? You pre-order it it now. Oh, my heavens. Somewhere in there. You're so big time, Bri. (laughs) Bri really is a great researcher and uh, and writer, and so um, we're picking his brain. He did uh, some work here at BYU with with professors at other universities, though, right? Yeah. There was a couple um, from Loyola um, and St. Mary's, a couple of universities that helped us with this. And then Jason Carroll, uh, Professor Jason Carroll from BYU. Mm -hmm. And you went and you at you – what was your sample size? Um, this was about 800 right. um, young adults from several different universities around the U.S. And you asked them what how they what they need to see to know that if they're if they're ready to get married or not. Mm-hmm. And their their list was pretty much they need to have interpersonal competencies, family capacity, the ability to support a family, take care of a home, uh, intrapersonal competencies, the ability to kind of manage their own reactions, their emotions to stay positive, understand their anxieties, their depressions, knowing themselves. The fourth one is role transitions. Mm-hmm. What what did they what what were the questions that constituted role transition? So these these are the ones that were specifically about these kind of big life transitions, like um, buying a home, mm. graduating from college, starting my job first major job. You know, the, these big kind of transitions in life. And and, and these were rated, you know, pretty highly by a lot of them, as I kind of mentioned earlier, this these these are the the ideas that are really tripping up yeah. a lot of young adults because there's so many choices, right? <laughs> right. There's a lot of choices, and this is what's really shifted in the, in the last two generations, is that role transitions didn't really used to be a big part of marriage, other than graduate high school. Today. Right. That was the transition. You would graduate, yeah. then you join the army, yeah, or and go then, to college. And you get married pretty That's soon right. after that. That's right. Um, but now there's this this much longer list of transitions that young adults feel like they have to do 
before they get married. And college is actually one of the major ones. Now, the finish issue with college. That, yeah, finish college. Uh. The issue for that for a lot of them, though, is that college is getting longer and longer. <laughs> and now it's not just finish my undergraduate degree. It's finish my, yeah, my you graduate, graduate degree or PhD, or, PhD right. or medical school or dental, you know, whatever I'm doing because you can't get a real job anymore right. with a bachelor's degree. And that's why it's extending, too, because you have to make a living. That's the right. next transition. Right. But you can't make a living with just a degree. Yeah. And that's that's one of the issues with the role transition criteria is it becomes this kind of moving target of, well, I, I really need to graduate college, but then I'm going to go and get huh. a graduate degree. So I need to go do that. And, well, it, it, I should really probably get my job set first because yeah. I don't even know where I'm right. going to be. Who knows? So you right. do that, and then it takes a couple of years to really get settled in a career because that's the other unique thing about millennials is that when they take that first job out of college, that's not going to be where they end up. No. For the, you know, they're right. expecting that I'm going to have two or three jobs in the first five years of my career. So, so true. that has to get done first. And yeah. You can kind of see how this just keeps pushing things back, 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 back. So that's interesting. Yeah, because the, and that will never end. And then there will somewhere be, oh, now you, an internship. So now they'll right. start putting internships in there. Yeah. And oh, and, and then the, the year off for travel, that free right. travel year. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Got to do that. Yeah. Got to experience and, the world. And what happens then is, is that that keeps pushing things back. Now, that could happen indefinitely, but what starts to happen, what we see in, in our research is they do have this kind of ticking clock in their head, and it's called fertility. Yeah. <laughs> because most of them still want to have kids, and they have this awareness that once I get into my 30s, I'm starting to limit my fertility options. So on the one hand, I'm waiting for all these role transitions to happen that yeah. are now pushing me closer and closer to 30. On the other hand, I have this biological clock that's ticking too. And so they start to feel this squeeze Holy cow. in their late 20s and early 30s, which is coincidentally when we see most of them make the transition. Make the transition. Interesting. And, and, but they're being squeezed kind of from both ends. Right. One end is shortening your, your fertility span and the other is trying to extend your right. life. Yeah. One, one of the fun things is life? Um, that was actually in my book, not this particular study, is we talk about this paradox of marital timing where a lot of the young adults we talk to in the book – said, well, you can get married too early, right? Yeah. Early 20s, yeah, too early. And mistake. they would talk down on those mm-hmm. marriages like they're never going to last. Yeah. But you could also get married too late. And so there is this kind of, well, too early, too late. And at the same time, they also want to say, but you get married whenever you want. Yeah, you got to do it. Yeah. Oh, do wow. what's right what for pressure. you. Do, you know, it's, you have to figure out your own individual timeline and it's different for everyone. There's no right time. Huh. But- you can be married too early and too late, so you yeah. got to figure it out quick and hurry. And that it seems like it gets us into the next issue of norm compliance. Right. Just the because it used to be the norm was you would just like with me in my church, my belief system. Mm-hmm. You know, at twenty one, twenty two, when I was in college, you ought to be finding a wife. Right. Yeah. Get and, married. Let's get going. And now those norms have certainly gone away. And a lot of the norm compliance ones were also things that actually do hold up to reach. These are things like risk-taking behaviors and uh-huh. drug use and alcohol. Although, again, as you said, as those norms in society have gone away, a lot of now our highest risk-taking population is not adolescents anymore. It's young adults. Interesting. True, huh? Where now in college, that is seen for a lot of them. And even outside of college, that, you know, your early 20s, late teens, that's your prime risk-taking. You're out of the, your parents' house. Yeah. Binge drinking goes up. Yeah, right. As I tell my students when we're talking about kind of developmental issues, we, we've got this interesting culture now where if I have a 15-year-old or a 35-year-old that's getting completely bla- you know, blackout drunk mm-hmm. every weekend, yeah. that's alcoholism. But a 21-year-old, a 20-year-old at college, at college that's just partying. Well, that's, that's a phase. You know, I wouldn't necessarily like it. And right. If I'm a parent, I, I hope that you're using that in moderation. Interesting. But I'm not going to worry that much yeah. about it. Boy. 
So that's that's fascinating, isn't it? And the, the the last one that I think was I hear a lot about this is sexual experience. You right. you you know you have to know a lot of people sexually in order to know if you're sexually compatible. Yeah, I I call this one the myth of sexual chemistry mm. because this is the one that lines up the worst with research. The, you know, there, the, a lot of ones we've talked about don't necessarily connect with preparation right. for marriage. This is the one that's just the opposite. It's left field. Yeah, the the research suggests that the more sexual experience I get, the higher my risk of divorce and the higher my risk of poor marital quality is. Really? That although there is this assumption that I want to find, like you said, I need to find someone that I'm compatible with. Yeah. Someone that understands me because who wants you know thirty, forty, fifty years of, of bad sex with a partner? What we think is actually happening is I get experience with multiple partners. Is that that experience doesn't go away when I'm married? No. And so now, instead of sex being about with this one person and connecting with this one person, it's much easier, we think, to start to think, well, you don't do A, B, and yeah, C. Yeah, it's comparative you know, my now. My girlfriend one did uh-huh. this and girlfriend two did this and I kind of wish you did this a little bit more. Interesting. And it, it almost breeds dissatisfaction. Yeah. Plus, yeah, mistrust. History plus mm-hmm. other, I mean, I guess diseases, other issues. Right, there's that side as, Pregnancies. as well. Pregnancies. Right. How interesting. So, but the research doesn't hold up that having a lot of partners doesn't create longer marriage. Right. In fact, there's been several studies now that have suggested that when it comes to sexual experience, those that have the highest quality marriages and the least probability for divorce are the abstainers, the ones that wait until marriage. Interesting. The, but the ones that everyone just laughs yeah. at, like, look at you guys. Yeah. In fact, there's even a, a body of research that suggests it's not even just about the number of partners, but how quick. That even the couples that that transition quickly in their relationship to sexual experience, that also becomes a risk How factor. fast you move there. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because a lot of couples, even if I haven't had a lot of previous experience, will say, well, while we're dating, we need to get there before we get married yep. because I need to test the waters with you. And totally. even that has been found to be a risk. Which also it seems to go back to the interpersonal issues, the intrapersonal. Mm-hmm. How ready are you? Do you right. know yourself? Why are you giving in so easily? Why are right. you giving out so much? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Man, see how it works, Brian? You always bring us such cool stuff. Yeah, happy to. Well, uh, appreciate you. Brian Willoughby's his name. Again, go check out his website, drbrianwilloughby.com. Uh, associate professor here in the School of Family Life at BYU. We'll take a break, come back and visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation to find out what's coming up on their show. Stick with us. Yes, it's that time, folks. To shoot it down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem today, find out uh, what they will be bringing to the party in just nine short minutes. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hi, Matthew. How you doing? We're just dandy and wonderful today, my friend. (laughs) Thanks, Mr. Rogers. (laughs) Won't you be my neighbor? Oh, yes. I'll be your neighbor any day. By the way, Jeff Simpson's back. He's, oh, Jeffrey! He came back. His uh, he, he had left. A, he, yeah, he had a baby. Diddy dental. He had no, his a, wife he, had a baby. his wife had a baby, and we we That's don't great. we don't want to talk about it too much. But it was in the lobby of the emergency room. No, it wasn't. Yeah, are you dead Stop serious? It. Dead serious. Wow! Walking in. Not even kidding. Not had, even kidding. I had played a softball game about twelve hours earlier, and I almost you know had to catch this baby. It was it was it was uh, the greatest catch of your life. And and then they named the cute boy Stas. Which means in huh? in in Latvian it means um, it means lobby birth. Wrong. Stas. Wrong. 
It's uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be stat, but they mis they misspelled it on the. Uh, on the form. That's an amazing oh. drop, by the way. Wrong. Oh. Wrong. Don't you love it? We need to borrow that It's one. not great because I hear it all day. <laughs> Wrong. 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 So, gentlemen, uh, what's Sad. going on? What's, uh, what's up on your show today? Today we're going to have some fun. In the spirit of the Warriors super team that just won the NBA Finals, <laughs> we will discuss the BYU basketball starting five super team. Plus, cool. we'll have one of the greatest players in BYU basketball on the show today, Michael Smith. Woo! Wow, Ooh, Michael Celtic, Smith. First rounder. Yeah. Jimmer Fredette, by the way, will join the program Friday. Really? Yeah. So we'll discuss that. That's going to be fun. Michael Smith did something that no other return missionary has ever done when it comes to basketball and making the professional jump. What? I guess you'll tell us. Yep. It's coming up. Coming up. That is, I, I mean, I remember Michael Smith vividly. Oh, he was amazing, right? Yeah. Is there a more generic name than Michael Smith? No, there's not. By the way, Smith, one of the most popular names nationwide. Is on your side. Mm-hmm. In Brazil, it's Da Silva. Da Silva. Like one oh, out yeah. of every eight people is Da Silva. Hold on. Is da Silva. da Silva Smith? Oh, that's well, the popular name. In yeah. the U.S., it'd be like Smith, Johnson, and like the next five or six most popular last names. Linton. Lynch, Jordan, Jordan, <laughs> yes. Townsend. Nah. Yeah, yeah. Mine's, mine never Simpson. makes sense. Simpson. Mm-hmm. Simpson, like Homer and Bart. Yeah. Well, that's a good Pfeiffer. show. Ooh. Yeah. That's a great show. Um, but tomorrow you're going to have uh, you're going to have the big. No, that's Friday. You're going to have James Taft. James Taft. Yeah. Bradette. Yeah. Is that his name? Uh huh. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, James Taft. Uh, and are you going to find out if he's going back to China? Well, we'll ask him. What, what's the plan? We man? will get the latest. And what the what heck, ha- man? Tell what us happened what's going with his on. workout uh, for the Denver Nuggets? Yeah. Ooh. Hey, huh. be, be sure too to ask about his baby because that will endear him yes. to you. Wesley. Yes. Yeah. Just say, how's the baby doing? A girl named Wesley. It's different, right? Uh, plus, we'll have Tyler Haas on the all-time leading scorer. Cool. Tomorrow, and Phil Steele uh, of Phil Steele's ma- uh, College Football Magazine. Uh, also today, by the way, the Major League Baseball draft continues. We'll tell you what BYU signee for mm-hmm. baseball was drafted yesterday. Is it coming to BYU or not? We'll discuss. Plus, today, BYU expects at least one guy to get drafted, uh, and his name's Brock Hale. Do you know what round? Uh, I would guess. 11 through guess, 40. Uh, yeah, okay, would, one of those rounds. I guess somewhere 11 through 20. Are there, tw- yeah. are there 40 rounds in the there MLB? It used to be 50 until 2012. Holy Hannah, that's a long draft. <laughs> <laughs> the draft that just keeps going. Well, yeah. here's the thing. It's crazy. You've got to fill a lot of roster spots because of all of the minor league right, teams true. and rookie ball leagues and all that stuff. And there's no guarantee that a lot of these guys are even going to come and play for you right now because sure. they could stay in college baseball. They or have options. To, or just go to college. Or just go to college. Yeah. 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 See, this is why we need you guys to walk us through the confusion. <laughs> Known as BYU Sports. But you're awesome. Okay, I'm going to cut you loose. you got five minutes to lock and load. Go visit them, folks. Stick with us. In five minutes, all you got to do is just sit where you are. And some of you are in traffic, so that's fine. you got nowhere to go. But BYU Sports Nation will be up. And if you happen to be at home, get it on television. Because then you can look at these two good-looking guys, and it'll change your life forever. No, don't do that. We need the ratings. That's true. Listen to both. Have the radio on and watch them live. Why not? Hey, uh, fun story. Um, I guess fun. <laughs> I mean, it, it not, it's not always fun. Uh, spilled Nels 
leave 40 vehicles stranded on on a 15-mile stretch ninety of uh, Highway 91, I guess. Oh, that is fun. Mm-hmm. This is in uh, Orange County and Riverside counties. An estimated 40 vehicles with flat tires were stranded midday Thursday uh, because they ran over nails. Well, that's okay, you know, because Orange, Orange County and Riverside County don't really struggle with traffic all no, that much. I mean, so. luckily, there's not any traffic problem going yeah. through that area. The 11 a.m. incident left vehicles stranded for over a 15-mile stretch on the freeway. It took four hours to completely clear the road of cars and nails. That's the thing, too. You got to get all the nails off the road. We believe it has some sort of construction vehicle that was sp- uh, was spilling the nails, uh, I hope. Back in the day, in like trucker strikes, they used to drop nails all over the freeways and mess everyone up. Kinda Nailed weird. it. Nailed it. By the way, yesterday I, I drove my new car over a screwdriver. Really? Yeah. And I was mm. so worried like, oh, boy, I'm either going to puncture my tire or I'm going to shoot a screwdriver up into someone else's windshield. And honestly, nothing happened. My car's that good. Yeah. Nothing happened. Then I pulled into my garage and I hit my bike. Ooh. Yep. I hit my mm. bike. I actually hit my son's bike. You know, I ran over a ladder once on the freeway going about 75, 80 miles an hour. How was that? I just kept going. That's scary. Yeah. Boy, a lot could go wrong with a ladder. It was in my Honda Accord, though. So nothing goes wrong in the Honda Accord. No, no. Accord. Honda's flawless. Uh, California Highway Patrol officers slowed traffic on the freeways on the eastbound lanes while crews removed the two and a half inch nails. Some guy arrived at his work site, and he's like, so where are the nails? I don't know. I swear. I put them in the back of the truck. It's hard uh, because they were embedded into the roadway, almost like spike strips. So the next time they need to catch a crook that happens to take that road, then they'll be set. That's true. Except, you know, so will 40 vehicles that are – Oh, they're, they're all guilty. They've all done something illegal. See? God's not on your side. That's what a lot of people think. Uh, but uh, here, here's our hero story of the day if you want to bring some, some peace to your mind. Uh, a Lakewood lifeguard saves a toddler on their first day of job. Listen, uh, of their job. Listen to this. In Lakewood, Ohio, it started out as a fun-in-the-sun day at the Charles A. Foster Pool in Lakewood Thursday. But things quickly turned dangerous in just a matter of minutes. Lifeguard Jack Viglianco, 15, says, I heard like a help, ah, kind of thing. And I looked over and I saw a guy who's probably about three foot six inches in the four-foot water gasping for air. The victim was actually a four-year-old boy at the pool for a summer camp uh, field trip. Viglianco says the young boy was bobbing up and down, screaming for help. Not only was it Jack's first day on the job, it was his only 20 minutes into his first shift. That's when his life-saving skills jumped in, and uh, he did as well. Active drowners can still breathe. They're still above water, but they're still in the act of drowning, Viglianco said. Anyway, he jumped in, you know, handled it really well, and... uh, Went in, saved the kid's life, and the boy turned out to be just fine. Uh, Between the two public schools in that area, there were 42 heroic life-saving efforts just last uh, in the last two summers, which scares me because my one of my children wants to be a lifeguard, and I'm looking at him like, "You don't even clean your room. How are you going to be ready to save lives?" But uh, thank you, uh, Jack Viglianco, for uh, saving a life and doing what you're you know what you're trained to do. That's the show, my friends. We're out of here. Until tomorrow, we're going to uh, 
We're going to go get ready for tomorrow's show. You just go make it a great day, a great life. Take care of each other. Be a hero for somebody out there and uh, pick up the nails on the freeway. Until then, let's make it a great one. Take care of each other and BYU Sports Nation up next. 